Well, what a f***ing year. But finally, the light out of the tunnel is growing brighter, and if we wear masks, follow the science, and safely get vaccinated a summer, or winter for the Australian fans, of love will bask us in the greatness of everything we miss while doing our best to help others in the past year. Because it, it was a year that tested us. It pushed humanity to a point we've never been before, and we saw the truth of who people are. People faltered and stepped aside while others suffered, yes, but way, 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 way more people stepped up to help and be a force of much-needed good in our world. The everyday hero. And as we move forward, it's important to remember those who stepped up not only across healthcare, but grocery store workers, fast food workers, every aspect of the mail system, just to name a few. Those who peacefully and safely marched for social causes throughout the world from Tokyo to my home streets of Minnesota. Those who worked tirelessly to make sure children and those in need had food. Humanity stepped up. We the people stepped up. And not to go on like every goddamn pandemic commercial happening, I'm so, I think we're all sick of them. I'll end the portion with these parting words. Some people found success and achieved more than they could have ever imagined in 2020. But just making it to 2021 was an achievement in itself. That alone is something to celebrate. And from the deepest cockles of my heart, the ventricles, I did not do well in the heart section of uh, college. From the deepest portions of my heart, good job. But let's talk about 2021. The podcast is locked into two brand new episodes a month every other Tuesday with bonus episodes sprinkled in. So there may be a month where we get three episodes, maybe a month where we get four episodes, but there will be at least two episodes. That is my promise to you a month every other Tuesday, but bonus episodes will be sprinkled in, including our deep dive series finally on the way. Uh, a few episodes are ready to go when the time is right. More interviews with top freaking notch guests. Man, the guest list is Poppin! Feel like I'm Nobu on a Friday night. It's 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 a list. It's a list, and it's gonna blow your ears off. Uh, not actually. Uh, don't quote me on that. But I'm so happy with who we have coming on the show. As the show continues to grow, just the amount of people that are interested in the show is is amazing. And you know, I hopefully I can take that quality and give it back to you in amazing conversations. Uh, we're going to have past guests come back to host their own episode. I'm excited about that. And a new five to 10 minute show that will constitute a quick look at all these stories that I've collected that don't make it into official episodes. I seriously have a list of at least 300 plus of the strangest, most bizarre news stories that I haven't used that I need to share with you. And then the most important thing during this upcoming year, as the water cooler talk umbrella continues to grow, I want to hear from you. What do you like? What don't you like? Who do you want to see on the show? What topics do you want to cover? Last year, as the show continued to grow, so did you guys. And the amount of support and feedback was so amazing and it was so vital to where the show was today. And I want that to continue. I want to get to the point where we can do something like a town hall together to discuss the strange and bizarre happenings in the news. This show, as much as it is mine, doesn't happen without you. And that's my focus for this year of the podcast, not only to continue to make a kick-ass, I, I mean, don't quote me on that, but I'm sure tons of people have said that about the show, a kick-ass piece of entertainment, but to do a better job of connecting with you, and I want you to hold me accountable to that. So, with that, I present to you the best of 2020 episode. The episode includes the top five stories from Water Cooler Talk's 2020 guest slate based on a combination of what we both found interesting throughout the year. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 55 titled Best of 2020. 
Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, Maria, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Let's do it. This is from Forbes editor Pick. What can you do if somebody steals your face to make a pornographic video? Unfortunately, the answer isn't as obvious as it seems. Since machine learning started being widely used to create deepfakes, synthetic media in which a person in an existing image or video is replaced with someone else's likeness, the technology has been overwhelmingly applied to create pornographic videos of men, sorry, of women without their consent. 99% of deepfake porn exclusively targets female actresses, musicians, or athletes. Despite the technological progress in tracking deepfakes, which includes Google and Microsoft taking a lead in image detection, the reality is that the vast majority of users are simply looking for a certain level of realism to a favorite celebrity, even though they know for sure the video is fake. Scarlett Johansson, a popular target, has given up on trying to prevent misuse of her image. She says, I think it's a useless pursuit, legally, mostly because the internet is a vast wormhole of darkness that eats itself. Even if you copyright pictures with your image that belong to you, the same copyright laws don't apply overseas. I have sadly been down this road many, many times. The fact is that trying to protect yourself from the internet and its depravity is basically a lost cause for the most part. An entire deepfake industry is now developed. About a thousand such videos are uploaded to some of the top porn sites every month, with some garnering upwards of tens of millions of views. To complicate matters further, we have an extremely confusing legislation which, in many countries, grants the right to an image of some people not to them, but to the creator of the image, as in the case in many situations among photographs by paparazzi of public figures. While some politicians worry about the misuse of deepfake videos in election campaigns or before important legislation votes, reality has moved on and now anyone can take control of someone's image to create a video in which they appear to be doing whatever the creator may want them to do, and the affected party is all but powerless to try and do anything to stop them. In an untenable situation, how do we regain consent over the use of our own face? We've we've covered deepfakes before, and it's one of those things that just, it gets me so angry that this is an industry that exists that people are so people are so depraved that they need to create something that doesn't exist to get off or to feel like they're in control so i do want to ask you this question you know why do you believe generally men i would say mostly men over sexualize women to the point of using technology to literally create images and videos of them in non-consexual sexual situations? I would actually say that nothing has really changed in a way. I would say it's the same kind of sexualization that has been going on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's 2020 now. We've got other possibilities, technologically speaking. And so I think we're going to use whatever we have available to us to basically just continue doing what has been done for centuries. I mean, in 10 years, it's going to be something else. But to the core of it, it is a problem with, as you're saying, like it's, it's a mistreatment of, of women. And it really has to do with a lot of things, I think, you know, attitudes uh, in, in society in general that are sexist and unequal. And I mean, we still doesn't, you know, we still don't have equal pay, you know, today and it's, it's 2020. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it really shows up in different areas, I think, um, within the society, but, but to the core, I think it's a matter of, of attitudes, uh, that needs to be changed. And which is why I think it's still, you know, important to talk about porn and to really acknowledge the fact that we have all this research saying that porn can, in fact, produce these kinds of attitudes 
make us categorize women into you know the Madonna Madonna whore complex if you've heard of that you know like oh she's yes. my mm-hmm. sister nobody can touch her she's kind of holy and pure but then there is this person in let's say prostitution you know she's a whore and I can do whatever I want with her you know that separation it's the same kind of attitudes being expressed in different ways no I think I mean you nailed the you nailed the head or you nailed the nail on the head you nailed the nail on the head something I I, I know I've used that phrase before and I still don't have it right but anyways it is it's men have been over sexualizing women's for forever and the medium's just gotten better. You know, I was reading about how Playboy, when they first started, they had this column beaver hunt. Men would send in photos of women, naked women, to put them on this beaver hunt section of Playboy to show off these naked women and as, you know, prizes, basically. And I don't know, as far as like, why men tend to over-sexualize women. I don't know if it's biological. I don't know if it's just, you know, remnants of the horrible idea of what it means to be a man and how men fit into society from yesteryear. But from my experiences, men tend to need to feel in control. Hmm. I think that's why, you know, there's the stereotype of as a man, you're never supposed to ask for directions when you're lost because right. you don't want a stranger to think you're not in control of your own situation. And it, it, it's it's utter bullshit. I think it's so stupid, but it, it's just something that's ingrained in our minds. So when you take someone like Scarlett Johansson and her stature, and then you have this obsession of celebrity that we have across the world, and then you have someone who, you know, a man in this case, who's not in the public eye and, you know, he's just at home and he's like, well, you know, I'm never going to be Colin Jost. I'm never going to get Scarlett Johansson to be interested in me. I don't feel like I have control of that situation. So I'm going to either create something of my own to try to get some iota of control, or I'm going to pay someone to give me that control. And oh, now there's a video of Scarlett Johansson naked and doing something that, you know, she's not consenting to. And now I feel like I have some control over the situation, some control over my life that, oh, look, Scarlett Johansson, she's too good for me. Well, now I'm looking at her naked. It's, it's, I hate that this is ingrained in manhood that we need this iota of control, but it's there. Mm. And I even know, you know, like before this, we talked about, you know, being on other podcasts and it's like, it's tough for me to be on other podcasts because of the control of my image. Like I want my image to be this way or that way. And I just know I want to feel in control as a man of who I am. And it's just it's just one of those attitudes, you know, as we've been mentioning, that needs to change. It's not going to change today. It's not going to change tomorrow, but it needs to change. I think you just hit the nail on the head or <laughs> however that was supposed to be said. <laughs> however it's said. I'm not even going to look it up to correct no, it No, me neither. It's way more fun like this. <laughs> no, but wow. I think you, yeah, I think you're onto something. What we can, I guess, just only hope for in the future is for the norms and kind of the way we view, especially as you're saying, manhood and like, what is it to actually be strong? And what does it mean to to show power? You know, like, is it the person who screams the loudest and who is the nastiest? You know, is that really the strongest person? And, you know, I would I would argue otherwise, but I think it's I think it's something that really needs to change, like when, the, you know, within the root of our culture and in our identity, I guess, in terms of how we actually view strength and how we view power and how we view 
men. I think it's not only hurting women, these norms. I think a lot of men suffer too from always having to be this strong, independent, never having to ask for directions, you know, got it all figured out. Um, nothing bothers me. You know, I, I'm never upset. I'm never sad. I think that is going to be harmful to a man as well. Um, and I've done some uh, previous work, vol- voluntarily work only uh, within a prison here in Sweden and meeting sex offenders, males only, and uh, a high-risk prison. So, I mean, the stuff they've been doing, you know, is obviously awful. But to really see and to also talk with their psychologist, which they, you know, they will go into therapy with and to really see that a lot of the men uh, have been taught only perhaps either you are, uh, let's say you are happy or you are angry. Yes, You yes. know, in between there is missing or at least you're not, you haven't been taught how to express that or you haven't been allowed to express that even. A lot of the times you would see men being angry when in fact they were sad, you know, and in fact perhaps their mother had just died and they're in prison and they haven't seen her for a while and now she's dead and so... Instead of crying, they're punching. The expression of emotion, I think, is really important to start integrating into um, into the male identity as well. I think that's going to help all of us. No, that's really important. Like, you know, Water Cooler Talk and myself were on the forefront of that male vulnerability discussion and having a lot of discussion with men. And time and time again, you get you ask them, you know, when's the last time you cried? And they say, why would I cry? Crying's gay. I'm like... What? Like, what, what kind of behavior is that? You know, what kind of, that's not healthy behavior. They've been taught, they've been ingrained through society, through, you know, older generations that, oh yeah, I can't cry. You know, I either, like you said perfectly, I either have to be happy or mad. There's no in between. And it just does not create a healthy outlook on life to the point where you're creating a, a fake pornographic image of someone because you feel like you need to be in some way in control. Like the contr- the, the lack of control, perhaps, that you actually are experiencing yes. in other areas of your life, perhaps then will will kind of manifest in what you're doing in this area. Yeah. Well, I do, I do, I do want to ask you, like, how do you believe the ease of access to create deep fakes will change how people date, hook up, even break up, heck, even have friendships? You know, as this technology becomes easier and easier and easier to use, its accessibility. Well, I mean, I don't want to say it, but it's kind of true. It creates a sense of fear in how you treat someone and how you treat a friend, a partner, an ex. You know, it's like, oh, if I broke that person's heart, are they going to just make a fake video of me? Right. And I mean, we already have that, uh, I would say, you know, what you're mentioning now in terms of... With revenge point. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yes. So that is a fear, uh, unfortunately, that a lot of girls especially have when it comes to breaking up with their male partner, because, you know, it happens. Guys, not everybody, uh, you know, thankfully, but some guys do this when they're upset. And it's just, it's so, I mean, it's just, it's just beyond disrespectful, because it is so hurtful to people who have been exposed to this. The stories that you read for, you know, from people who have experiencing being, uh, you know, treated this way you know they're talking about uh discovering it only years later the you know the realization of you know this has been online for two three years and i didn't even know it how many people have seen this and oftentimes it's someone they know that actually stumbles upon it and then sends it to them so there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt as well that people are talking about so it's not just a photo online it's, it's so much more it's so much more 
harm that's being done, then I think even the the perpetrator realizes as well. That was one of the biggest things that changed my porn viewing habits is hearing stories from even from friends where they're like, oh, a video went up on Pornhub, got millions of hits. I didn't want that video. I didn't say I could. he could record that video. A lot of those videos, you don't know if both parties agreed to do it or if it was just one party, if it was revenge porn. I think Pornhub, obviously being one of the bigger um, porn sites, has the adverse effects of, you know, you hear all the stories about revenge porn on Pornhub and how hard it is to get those videos off. Even child porn on Pornhub and how hard it is to get those videos off. I, I think if more people, you know, trying to go back to a kind of our first story a little bit, but if more people heard these stories from the actual people affected, I think porn habits would change because you'd be like, well, I'm not going to watch that video that looks like the camera's set up to be hidden. Oh, that girl probably didn't know about that camera. Right. You're so right. And I think that is hopeful as well, because then you're like, oh, so we can actually kind of fill this uh, gap with knowledge and with information. And then that is actually going to help. You know, that is actually going to make people you know, make more informed decisions, which you obviously have done as well. So that is so cool that that actually works, you know, like mm -hmm. if we can get the info out there, then that is gonna, that's gonna make it, I think for a lot of us, it's going to be more difficult to be with, you know, good consciousness, like be able to, to support this because you don't want to actually support something that's non-consensual. Most people wouldn't want that. So to get that out there, I think it's important. And I mean, it's being done now. You see a lot of stories in the media now, uh, just as you're saying, in terms of people experiencing having stuff uploaded on Pornhub, which then was not consensual. And now they're trying to get it removed. And Pornhub you know, refuses to do that. Mm -hmm. There was this story not long ago, um, which I, I don't know if it was new or just circulated then, but a girl, she, I think she tried for like six months to get Pornhub to get it off, uh, to take it off. And then, but not until she threatened with legal action. Yes. They mm -hmm. listened. Then it's not really a matter of, of her and her rights and her consent. It's more a matter of legal you know, just consequences and I guess money. So I think something that people kind of forget when having uh, these conversations and they're like, oh, she got taken down. Well, it's the internet. You can't really have anything taken down. Even if that video is up for a month, even if it's up for a day, it's still up there and people are still seeing that and people are seeing things that that person did not want the general public seeing. For sure. And then I think it's also important to remember that there are a lot of those stories within the, let's say, the classic porn industry as well, where you have people who have, you know, the same with what we were talking about earlier uh, in terms of people experiencing prostitution um, mm -hmm. In terms of having uh, experienced, uh, you know, sexual abuse and homelessness and all that, you know, like you see those factors as well within the porn industry. Not everyone, but it, 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 you know, it exists. So I think it's important to also see that something perhaps that could have been expressed at the moment or in the moment as consensual, perhaps in, you know, in hindsight wasn't. You know, that there are a lot of those stories as well. People saying, I actually really regret what I did. 10 years ago, uh, and I wish I could have it taken down, but I can't. You know, I signed a contract. It's it's there. You know, you have Mia Khalifa fighting for her rights yes. right now. Mm -hmm. Consent is, is it's somewhat tricky when it comes to the situation that you could also be in. There perhaps sometimes are reasons for consenting to something that perhaps in a different situation, a more, an easier situation, you perhaps wouldn't consent to it. So you have a lot of people regretting, you know, that as well. We kind of talked about better 
communication and relationships. And consent is one of those huge ones. You know, we talked about it in our sex education with Sam. Even looking back at after that conversation, even looking back at my own sexual encounters, I was like, well, we both agreed to have sex and we both enjoyed ourselves. But was I completely consensual during that whole time? Did I do something, you know, that maybe she wasn't uncomfortable or she wasn't comfortable with? But in the moment, she's like, well, I'm already here. Consent is one of those words where it's easy to say, oh, she consented to it. But it's like, what did she really consent? to everything involved in that act. And was it easy to say no? Yes. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it can be tricky for sure. Now, with defects, we have a situation where if a girl doesn't or someone just in general doesn't consent to some sexual situation, you can just go on the internet and take a photo of them and say, well, hey, I guess too bad. It's it's a very dangerous, dangerous, fucked up industry. I agree. I agree. And it's um, I was just I was thinking about this because I posted about deepfakes the other day and I was really like just putting myself to the extent that that is even possible, but putting myself in the shoes of someone who has been then that has been done to. And so I was just asking myself, how would I feel if someone did that? And I would just, I know I would just feel violated. You know, I would just Mm -hmm. feel disrespected and I would just be, you know, what the heck? Like, this is my face. This is my, it's like, it feels, I think, like theft in a way. Yes. Uh, Not only abuse, but also like, yeah, like like a really violation, really, of your integrity. I don't have control over my own image. Like, it looks like I'm doing something that I have never done and it looks so real. And, and that is also, you know, the reason we're talking about this right now is because it really looks real. You know, it is actually quite advanced uh, in many cases. Yeah, I would I would feel violated for sure. No, I appreciate you sharing that. All right, Sam, are you ready to jump into some Christopher Columbus? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Our final news story of the day is from Chris Six News Corpus Christi. This is from June 18th, 2020. Petition underway to rename Columbus, Ohio, Flavortown as city removes Christopher Columbus statue. After Columbus, Ohio's mayor, Andrew Ginther, announced that the city's statue of Christopher Columbus will come down, a petition with almost 100,000 signatures has made its way across the internet asking for the mayor to rename Columbus after one of its fortunate sons, Guy Fieri. As the U.S. comes to grip with a history of racism since the founding, uh, quotes on that, of America by Christopher Columbus in 1492, his legacy and action in doing so have come into focus and under scrutiny. Many historians actually believe the Norse explorer Leif Erikson led the first European expedition to North America nearly 500 years before the birth of Christopher Columbus in 999. But even before, I don't know if you knew this one, Sam, mm. even before Erikson, it is said Bajarn Herjolfsson, Herjolfsson, Herjolfsson was the first European to discover America. He was a merchant, but he did it merely by accident. Well, uh, Christopher Columbus also discovered America by accident. Very so true. do have that in common. During the discovery of America, whether it be Columbus or Erickson, nomadic tribes occupied the lands of North America and had a combined population of under 60 million. So there's a lot of people already here, uh, as we might get into our, in, into our discussion. But back to statues. The Christopher Columbus statue at Columbus City Hall is among several across the country that have been slated to be taken down, including in San Francisco and Sacramento. In addition to statues of Christopher Columbus being taken down, across the U.S., statues of Confederate leaders have been torn down as well. Uh, Buildings are being renamed and such as well. Christopher Columbus taught as an American hero for generations and the man to sail the ocean blue in 1492 has had his accomplishments re-examined as over the years historians have accused Columbus of participating in slavery, murder, and other atrocities against nomadic tribes. Many of those taught the catchy rhyme to remember Columbus's trip across the ocean 
We're never taught he returned a year later in 1493 with an invasion force to install himself as Viceroy of the Islands we now call Haiti in the Dominican Republic, and install a regime that instituted policies of slavery and extermination of the native population. Uh, a native population who were called the Taino, that once held 8 million strong, were down to 100,000 by the time Columbus left his position in the Caribbean seven years later in 1500. So Sam, you know how we had that catchy tune for Columbus Sails the Ocean Blue in 1492? I came up with a new one. Oh, wow. Uh, so I want to hear what you think. Columbus again sailed the ocean blue one year after 1492. And in this year of 1493, brought with him a pillaging infantry. That's good. I like that. Thank I think you. that should be the new the Schools new can use that. Uh, I will take royalties, though. Uh, but okay. Nothing's for free in this, in this society. Sam. No free lunch. Mayor Andrew Ginther wrote, For many people in our community, the statues represent patriarchy, oppression, and divisiveness. That does not represent our great city, and we will no longer live in the shadow of our ugly past. Now is the right time to replace the statue with artwork that demonstrates our enduring fight to end racism and celebrate the themes of diversity and inclusion. As for the renaming of Columbus, Ohio to Flavortown, Ohio, the petition reads, Columbus is an amazing city, but one whose name is tarnished by the very name itself. Why not rename the city Flavortown? The new name is twofold. For one, it honors Central Ohio's proud heritage as a culinary crossroads and one of the nation's largest test markets for the food industry. Secondly, Chef Liberty, I don't know why they just didn't use Celebrity Chef, Guy Ferry was born in Columbus. Uh, Flavortown is Ferris. Uh, that's, I think, how you say it, actually. It's true. <laughs> wow. Okay. Catchphrase when you often hear him say on one of the episodes of his food travel show, diners, drive-ins, and dives. Uh, Sam, yes or no, Flavortown? I'm all for it. I think this is a great idea. I think it would, you know, drive in the tour, the, it would drive in the tourism industry for Flavortown, USA. Um, I'm already, like, I'm waiting to get a shirt that says Flavortown, USA. I think, it, yeah, it would be like a tourism beacon. It would be, it'd be oh, a crazy absolutely. spot. I don't think they're going to do it because it's going to cost millions and millions to replace the names for everything from like, because you have to replace it from like buildings all the way down to like stationary. So I don't think they're actually going to do it, but they could like change the Columbus to somebody else. It doesn't have to be after Christopher Columbus. They could change it to, I don't know, another Columbus, but um, that's, you know, yeah, that's I, point. I don't live there, so I don't need to worry about it. That's very true. But I think, yeah, they should kind of have like, it has like a nickname. Flavortown is the nickname because I think it is. It would bring in so much more tourism. People, I would want to buy a shirt. You would. You already said you wanted to buy a shirt. And I think it would be, you know, a fun way. I think even what the petition says is like, you know, it's twofold. It's Columbus, Ohio is also a good food spot, you know, so why not honor Guy Ferri? It definitely better represents the city, I would think. So, yeah, I think it'd be a great idea. I think, you know, they could implement it slowly as they replace new Over things. Time. They can just yeah. put the new name in. That is one possibility. Uh, Sam, Flavortown aside, we've been seeing of late statues being taken down, whether that be of Columbus or of Confederate leaders who, by the way, if people need to be reminded, the Confederate lost. Sam, should statues of controversial historical figures be removed? It's another good question. Very good question. Very controversial question right now. Many are talking about within, you know, their families, within the media, you know, the answer is yes. I think they should be removed. Um, it might depend on how controversial they are and according to who. Um, I think controversial is a very, it's not an objective term necessarily. I think we should be memorializing people that, you know, actually hold the values of, you know, our society. Statue of Guy Fieri in Flavortown, USA <laughs> would be great. They're talking about maybe having a print statue you know, outside the Minnesota State Capitol instead of a Columbus statue. They're talking about a Dolly Parton statue in Tennessee rather than whatever controversial 
terrible person it would replace. You know, statues should be used to, again, you know, show people, you know, who we value, what our values are. A lot of countries or a lot of people in power, you know, use it for the opposite reason. A lot of people will use statues to show who's in power, to show who's oppressed. One thing that's interesting about a lot of the Confederate, you know, statues and monuments is they weren't actually put up right after the Civil War or during the Civil War. They were put up a few years after during like the Reconstruction period and the Jim Crow period to show people like, hey, we're still in power. You're still oppressed. And if you look at countries like Russia, the former Soviet Union, there were Lenin statues. Those got toppled by people, but no one is upset about that. They think that's a good thing. So I think we really need to challenge ourselves of our biases and we really need to to think, you know, well, should we have a should we have a Jeffrey Dahmer statue in Wisconsin? Uh, he's a notorious, you know, figure. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our heritage. Yada yada. Well, no, he's a serial killer. Yeah. No, I mean the same applies to uh, Christopher Columbus. He was a serial killer. Why do we have a statue of him? It doesn't make sense. Um, if you look at like North Korea, if there's a statue of Kim Jong Un, I don't think that's a really great statue because he's not a great guy. Should we have a statue of Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas? <laughs> no, we shouldn't. He's you know famous, not uh-huh. for the right thing. That would be toppled in seconds. Uh, it wouldn't even be put up in the first place. The Saddam Hussein statue got toppled. I'm pretty sure a lot of Americans were happy when that happened. You know, the will of the people overcame, and you know they they toppled it. So I think. Uh, we really need to to think about the context of this. And I know people you know, want to say it's our history. We shouldn't destroy it. Uh, we should learn from it. Well, that's true. Uh, we should be. I think you can easily put them in a museum for people to you know see. Um, they shouldn't be out in front of the people's house, in front of a capital, because that's not welcoming to everybody. And our government and our the people's house should be welcoming to people. I think you nailed it on. You nailed the head. You nailed the nail on the head? I don't. Sure. You know what? It's my show. I can say whatever. <laughs> but I think I think you uh, nailed it because, yeah, exactly. I don't think these statues should be up, but as I think they should not be destroyed. I think destroying them is the wrong way to go about it. I think they should be put in, you know, museums in 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 the context of what they were. As you, I think you described it perfectly, like having them out in the open in front of capitals, it's a sign of a power for what that person stood for. And, you know, if it is, you know, a Confederate leader, a Confederate general, obviously they stood for something completely different than what America or the direction America went. So you're basically saying I'm supporting something that is not supported by the country. I think, yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting to kind of think about is like a lot of military bases are named after Confederate like generals. Mm -hmm. Why do we have bases of the United States of America, the Union? Named after people that wanted to succeed from the union. You know, they were, they're fighting for what they believed in. You know, I can see maybe that argument. Uh, I don't really agree with what they were fighting for. Um, I don't think many people do. So like, it doesn't make sense. Why should we have that? Well, that kind of goes to that question, you know, like, how do we find controversial historical figures and how, how far back are they okay to do what they did? You know, because right. you look at someone like Genghis Khan, who decimated, you know, Asia, but a lot of people look up to him as a great leader, as a great general because of what he was able to do. But I'm sure people in his, their, in his time were like, nah, fuck that guy. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> He's pretty much taking over most of the world. 
You know, you look at people like Alexander who marched all over the Middle East and killed a bunch of people. A lot of people look up to him. They call him Alexander the Great. You know, you look at Augustus Caesar, you look at Napoleon, you know, if we're saying those guys are controversial, this is going to be very controversial. How many years until someone like Hitler isn't controversial? Yeah, that's a hot take right there. And I think, (laughs) (laughs) and I think when we talk about, you know, military bases being named after these generals, what they did on the battlefield and the strategies they did were, you know, top of the class. That's why they were generals. But as you said, what they were fighting for doesn't match up with where the country is now. So why are we naming them or why are we naming these, you know, bases, these, you know, buildings, these stadiums after people that don't agree with where we are now as a country? And it's it's the perfect time to, you know, I would understand if there's nothing going on, people are like, we're just going to change this. But now is the perfect time where it's like, it makes sense to change it in this moment. So why not do it? And kind of going back to my point on, you know, taking these moments, taking these statues, taking these monuments, putting them in museums and teaching people who this person was, what they contributed to history, why they matter now. Because I think, you know, as someone who loves history, the most important thing is to not repeat history. And I think we do that by educating people on the losers of history. We have a history written by the union and that's where we are today. But, you know, as we see in politics today, both sides have good things that they're fighting for. Obviously, the Confederates were fighting, you know, they may have not had, they may have had a very small percent of good things, but I'm sure there are things that you could kind of look at and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know too much about the Civil War, so I can't, you know, bring up any examples. But it's a good time, especially now, to teach people about the history, reteach the history, you know, reteach who Christopher Columbus was, talk about the massacres that have happened in the US that aren't reported on, you know, Tulsa massacre. This is the perfect time to take these statues of people like Christopher Columbus, take them down, put them in a museum and build the story about why in today's time, what they did was wrong. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We really do have an opportunity here and we definitely shouldn't waste it. You know, we have an opportunity to to make the change we want to see. And I do think your question about, you know, how do we decide what's controversial is a really good question and it's a really hard question. Um, It's a very complex question. I mean, you could look at someone like Abraham Lincoln. One thing that a lot of people don't know, and this is like a Minnesota little, little factoid, in Minnesota, in Duluth, occurred the largest mass hanging, mass execution in U.S. history. 38 Native Americans were were hung. They were hung in Duluth, Minnesota. And... You know, Abraham Lincoln had to sign off on that, and he was the one that, that signed off on that. He might not have been as aware of what he was signing off on, but he did sign off on it. You know, people can argue he wasn't that great of a guy if he signed off on the mass hanging of Native Americans. Well, I think that's the thing you really have to start thinking about when you talk about historical figures. We can't just like pick and choose. That's like the Bible. We can't just pick and choose on what we like and then you know, all the other things that are like, well, you know, probably shouldn't talk about that. Even like someone like George Washington, he owned slaves. Like you kind of have to decide, is it fair to judge the people of yesterday by yesterday's standards or today's standards? Because obviously, you know, we've had this discussion many times on the podcast, like the words like gay and homo and fag and stuff like that. People were using that so often in the early 2000s because that's what everyone was doing, you know, not saying it's right now, but are we judging somebody like George Washington in today's standards where obviously we know slavery was very wrong when back then that was part of society? Yeah, it's a really, you know, hard thing to figure out. I mean, is it a no tolerance? Is it a balance? I don't have the answer. It is a hard answer 
to figure out. Um, I mean, even someone like Gandhi, who was known for, you know, peaceful protests and whatnot. Apparently, he was a racist to some people. Um, and he had some sexual things going on, right, too. Right, exactly. Ulysses S. Grant, who was, uh, you know, the big uh, general during the Civil War. He also wasn't that great towards Native Americans. He got his, I think it was his eulogy, was given by Frederick Douglass. It's, again, that's hard. That's a hard balance. That's a hard thing to figure out. Um, people are tearing down Grant statues for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I think the key is to have conversations and to come to a consensus and to make sure, like, everyone's at the table in these decisions um, and to make sure that, you know, a clear process about how these things get removed or how these things get put up in the first place is really really important. I mean, even with the University of Minnesota, Kaufman Union, Kaufman, you know, was a racist. And that's a hard conversation that the university is having. So these things come up, whether it's a, a big context or a small context. I mean, if you're naming anything after anyone, whether it's a plot of land, whether it's a building, whether it's you're putting up a statue, you have to be very careful and you have to make sure that everyone's included in those conversations. Even land, like the thought of naming land is really a big no-no for people in the Native American community because as you just don't do that. Like it's 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 the land, it's the people's land. No, I definitely, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just kind of wanted to bring, you know, kind of the devil's advocate because I think, yeah, it's important. I think it's important that we have the conversations and figure out, you know, what's more than, or what's, What's to the point where we tear down the statues and what's to the point where we honor these people as historical figures that made our world a better place? And, you know, kind of bringing it back to Christopher Columbus, you know, why do you believe Christopher Columbus is continually taught as a hero in U.S. history? We have to look at who's kind of what you referred to before, who's making these statements, who's referring to these people as, you know, quote, heroes, end quote. And often it's, you know, white people that are make, writing the textbooks that are doing this that right. don't have... Rich, white, wealthy people. Exactly. I guess wealthy and rich are the same thing. So but I yeah. think it's important to take a hard look at K-12 education and education in general and make sure that we have the facts right when we're teaching people. I was like thinking about the answer to this question and Americans love to create unnecessary heroes. The idea that, you know, the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, the freedom to believe in what you want to believe creates unnecessary heroes because it's like, well, I can believe in this person. I stand with them. They're my hero. You know, I'm sure someone like you mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm sure someone looked up to Jeffrey Dahmer as a hero and America allows you the opportunity to do so. But I think you get situations like Christopher Columbus where it's easy. It's easier to make him a hero because of what he could stand for for America and the building blocks of America, you know, uh, seven, 600, 600 years ago, 650 years ago, rather than, you know, treating him as a villain and being like, well, America was started by this guy who killed people, put them into slavery, raped women, you know, threw babies under rocks to kill them, all these horrible, horrible things. Mm -hmm. But it's easier to say, well, America's not that way. Exactly. I mean, that's, you got it right on the head. Um, it's, a lot easier to just accept it and move forward rather than have to go back and change it. Um, so when it comes down to it, the people in power, the people who are making these decisions don't have to think about these things. They don't, it doesn't affect them. Whereas the people that are, that were and are oppressed, it does affect them. And I, th I think that's something we have to, we have to take into account. It's a lot easier to not think about something that doesn't necessarily affect you. Yeah. When you're the big guy, you're not going to worry about what's hiding in the woods where the small guy is. But right. 
as the big guy, if you want to create this community, you also have to look out for that small guy. All right, Empress, are you ready to jump into another news story? Yes, let's do it. Uh, this is from the newsstatesman.com. Spotify's new tip jar won't say the industry, but it asks us to consider music's value. Um, and I do want to like just mention a disclaimer to the listeners before we get into the story. I do want to address that Water Cooler Talk does have a relationship with Spotify. I kind of mentioned it early in the show. We've been them. We've been with them since the beginning of podcasts on Spotify. They've helped the show expand internationally. So I do want to address that. Just put that out there. Be as transparent as possible. However, I am able to speak freely and without bias about Spotify. So I will, if Spotify needs it, I will give them some sass. All right. Recently, the streaming platform Spotify announced the introduction of an artist fundraising pick function. The new feature will allow musicians to place a make a contribution button on their page, offering fans the opportunity to donate directly to the artist or a charity of their choice. The new function aims to support artists and the creative community who have been deeply impacted by the effects of the devastating virus, namely those musicians who will drastically feel the financial impact of canceled tours, studio sessions, and promotional opportunities. Ever since streaming revenues surpassed CD sales in 2017, Musicians have switched from using tours to promote CDs to using streaming platforms to promote tours. Musicians have been relying on live ticket sales more than ever, but with venues closed and international travel all but impossible because of the pandemic, many musicians have been left without an income. Spotify does not officially disclose how much it pays a song rights holder. Uh, this could be split between a label, producer, songwriter, and the artist. But a blog by Soundcharts in 2019 calculated that the rate lies at an average of $3.18 per 1,000 streams. Many have been very critical of Spotify for its monetary system, including Taylor Swift, who pulled her catalog from Spotify, but later returned her music to the platform for it not being respectful of an artist's worth. One positive many have found from the introduction of Spotify's tip jar function, as many are beginning to label it, is that as an opportunity to support a group that the platform has never taken seriously before, smaller independent musicians. In the case where Spotify tripled royalty rates, as many are calling for the platform to do during our current pandemic, this would only benefit the highest stream artist on Spotify as they use a pro rata system that divides payout based on listening time. A tipping jar would allow fans to support smaller artists directly and avoid adding more into the pockets of Spotify royalty, including Drake, Ed Sheeran, and The Weeknd. The tipping jar model has already found success on sites such as Bandcap, which is widely seen by artists and fans as one of the fairest platforms on which to sell music, but many believe this is a half half-hearted gesture from a company that has long profited off of underpaid artists' music and played a heavy hand in transforming the music industry for the worst. Albeit conflated and somewhat hypocritical, Spotify's new feature encourages us to consider the value of music and the artists who make that music, and that can only be a positive thing. Uh, Empress, as a musical artist yourself, what are your thoughts on Spotify's tip jar? I mean, I don't I don't know. Um, I think that it's great for some artists who really do rely uh, solely on their their touring and, you know, just for an income, for an extra income. I, I love that. But I wonder, and, and I haven't used it myself, so I, this is all just kind of, we're just going to like throw this out there and, and chat about it. it. It does feel a bit degrading in, in some ways, only because it's like, what are we, we're professionals and now we're putting out a tip jar. It kind of feels like you're a street performer all of a sudden and, mm -hmm. and those you know, nothing against street performers, but they all aspire to be at the level that these people are at. And so kind of like bringing everybody down and kind of leveling the playing field a little bit, just it doesn't necessarily. And, and I think we can all agree to this. There's something about going somewhere and 
having a performance and then the performing artist like holds up a tip jar like no it wasn't free nobody likes that not one person I know I mean my husband and I always talk about this like yesterday for instance we bought a Vitamix 10 years ago should have a warranty for 10 years I call Vitamix yesterday we bought them from these guys called the Blender Boys and they literally had this like whole thing at Costco we went to Costco we bought them we find out that the Blender Boys bought the um, Vitamix on like QVC for a much cheaper price and then they were selling them at full price for us and we thought that it was covered under Costco, but it's not. And QVC's thing expired a long time ago. And now our Vitamix is broken and we don't have a warranty. And we were so mad about that because we're just like, we feel duped. Nobody likes to feel duped. Like we Mm -hmm. were taken advantage of by someone that you trusted. Your artist is like singing a song, pouring their heart out and then asking for money afterwards. How do you feel if somebody does that to you? No, I definitely, I very much understand that because it is, it feels like a street performance where I almost feel guilty if I don't leave a tip. All these different emotions where you feel angry, it might push your audience actually away. If they want to give, that's, that is, that is lovely to be able to give. I, I do appreciate that. But right now I feel like entertainers should be giving and not the people. You know what I mean? We should be like helping, you know, people in hospitals. We should be giving our music to like help. It's like, It's like giving people nourishing food when they're hungry. We're like, we're the ones that are going to satisfy this craving. And I understand that there is a a business involved, but that shouldn't be like the reason why we do it. You know, if that kind of, I don't know, the tip jar kind of brings me to this place where like, we did not start being an artist for the money. I I understand that we have to make money. I totally do. I I get that. And they don't want to have to be a waiter or, well, not that's a thing anymore, but they they don't want to have to have like five other jobs and be the singer and keep up the level of expertise that they, that needs to be there in order to do what we do. But I feel like right now we should be the ones giving and not not taking from other people for, you know, our art. Art is, it's not free all the time, but it, it's not why you start being an artist. I definitely like understand your point. And I think something that this pandemic did is and will do moving forward is make people realize that they need as many different income streams as possible. They really need to start diversifying their income because I definitely get your point, but I also kind of see this as a positive step forward for much smaller creators. Yeah. Because if you're on Spotify and unless you're, you know, making that Joe Rogan money, like you're probably not making a lot of money unless you're Drake, unless you're Ed Sheeran the weekend, you're probably not making, you know, a ton of money because first off, you're probably splitting it with a lot more people. I kind of see this as just like an alternative revenue stream. Yeah. But I also do understand like, yeah, art isn't free, you know, Specifically for podcasts, a lot of people use Patreon, but Patreon is also offering like if you sign up for a Patreon, you're you're getting something with it. You're getting something extra that you wouldn't get. So it's tough when you have Spotify, which you you know if you use it for free, obviously it's a different situation. But if you're using premium, you're paying this monthly subscription that over time that money does go to the artist, albeit you know not maybe the fairest you know situation. I I guess I could understand where people are like, well, I'm already paying for Spotify. I'm already supporting my artist in other way by maybe buying their music, going to their shows. Obviously, it's a bit different now in this pandemic. I don't feel comfortable tipping them when I could support them other ways. I, I think that it's it could be positive. I'm, I'm personally not using it right now because I just, honestly, you don't make money from streaming unless you are a big artist, but the big artists put a lot of money into making money. I mean, you, you, it is the, the age old, you have to have money to make money. 
syndrome that a lot of these artists have a lot of money backing them. And so they pour money into the promotion, into the whatever, whoever gets paid to get these streams, but they're not making very much money. So I think actually Mm -hmm. this should maybe go back to the basics of these platforms run around the artists, right? It's it's not the artists that should be running the circles around these platforms. It's the artists. And, and this actually goes to our empress mentality, our emperor mentality is like, if you really are the ruler over your own life, then people, you know, and, and each person is the ruler of their own life, then things start working for you, not vice versa. And I think artists, we don't respect ourselves enough. And a lot of times in my, you know, my ballet career, nobody's around long enough to get anything changed in that industry because everyone's very young. They're all eager beavers. And then when their bodies get injured or whatever, or old, we have to retire. And so there's no one that actually stays long enough in like, say the unions to actually make a difference. Because, you know, for me, even I was there for 11 years, I feel like nothing changed. And still the dancers are complaining about the same old, you know, we don't have enough time in between shows or, you know, all the the basic things. It's not even money necessarily. It's just the res- the self-respect. I think the real problem is that artists don't normally make money or good money from um, from streaming. I mean, mm-hmm. you said it yourself, it's 0.003. I mean, if you really think about that, that's no money for your music that you're putting out and it's it takes uh, some money to put together. So you're you're already negative, whatever it is. And so I think the, the real problem is that we're not making money on our music anyway. And where, where do you start with that? You start with like, okay, well, someone wasn't in there negotiating against Spotify when they were developing these contracts there's these stories about Steve Jobs kind of lying in in the um in the room with different record labels saying like well this record label said it's fine and they didn't you know and and artists got screwed because artists aren't in the room negotiating these contracts for me anyways it's going to be one of my biggest things is actually developing a new system that actually artists are the center of the universe and everyone else comes to us and we get paid and we own our work I think too often like Taylor Swift and stuff and this is this is just something that I feel very passionate about. So I apologize if this rocks anyone's boat or ruffles any (laughs) feathers. But I think for artists, we need to start treating this more like a business. If this was a business, this is a really poor way to run your business. You're not getting Mm -hmm. paid for the stuff that you do. When does that ever make sense? Well, kind of the speaking to your ballet thing, it's like a lot of these smaller artists, they're balancing like the morality of joining a company like Spotify and also realizing like for um, example, my podcast, 60% of my audience is from Spotify. Am I going to say like, well, you know, screw you Spotify and then just lose 60% of my audience. I think it's important. And I'll talk more about this in the third story, but like you can be on a platform and be of service to that platform, release things on that platform, but still change that platform from the inside. Like you don't need to just say, you know, fuck you, Spotify. You have to be inside to change it anyways. It it comes from within. Change always Mm -hmm. comes from within. Empowerment. It doesn't come from outside. It's you. It's it's all within. You d- you have to play the game. I've played all the games. I get it. You just you just play it. But at some point, you know, when do we start changing the game? And when it's impossible to change that game, when do you stop playing it? 
you know? And I think that it backfired on someone like Taylor Swift a little bit because she was like, I'm not playing that game. And then it, it becomes, like I said, Spotify, Apple Music, they're their own planet. They all revolve around the same thing. It's the artists. You know, they wouldn't have a platform if it wasn't for people that us, like that come together and create beautiful things. And I think for artists, you know, we do it because we love to do it and we don't start it because we want to be in the music industry for money, but it turns into a business at some point. We all have to grow up and start, you know, treating ourselves with more respect and it too often it happens too late in the game and the business guys never you know miss miss a beat with taking advantage of new artists well i think yeah that's the most important thing to remember is these platforms are businesses taylor swift was like i'm gonna pull my music from spotify because they don't pay me enough now she's back on spotify because she understood that well i'm losing a large chunk of my audience because people on spotify don't want to go on to apple music or this or that or that so i think yeah it is very important to understand the business aspect of your dreams. Because if this is something you want to do, if you put in the 10,000 hours to do something, I think it's important to also be aware of the business right. side of it. Like I'm very aware of the business side of podcasting. Like I understand the ins and outs as much as I can in this kind of new industry, but I understand what works, right. what doesn't, you know, what I need to do, speaking back to branding, like what I need to do with my brand to make sure I'm successful. And I'm not on every single platform because I realize like, why waste my time putting myself on a platform? People aren't going to listen to Spreading yourself so thin. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like when I share my podcast, I share it from Spotify because of this relationship. And then I have like six other things that I'll share it from because I know 98, 98.3% of my audience is on these eight platforms. So I know like why waste my time on the other 500,000 platforms that you can put a podcast on when I know this is where my audience is. And it's a part of, you know, back to what I said, it's a part of like balancing the morality and the business. Like, all right, yeah, you can be this goody, goody two-shoe who wants to work with good companies, but then also understanding like, well, no one's going to listen to me because, you know, Bandcamp is, you know, as they mentioned in this article, one of the best for supporting artists. You know, how many times do you hear people becoming famous off of Bandcamp? Who's, you know, I, I mean, I used to, that's, that's a bad example because I used to use Bandcamp to find clients, but it's not up there with the big boys. Like you said at the very beginning, it's not up there with these gigantic giants that are Spotify, yeah. Tidal, Apple Music. So it's like, kind of to my point, you have to balance the morality and what's best for your brand specifically. And I guess too, going, yeah, going into that a little bit, it's like you almost have to become bigger than the big boys before you can change mm -hmm. it nowadays. So that's an interesting thing. So how do you do that? You play the game until you become equal or bigger and you have a louder voice and then you can maybe change a little bit, but you can't do it by like hitting people over the head. I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you can't beat beat that into somebody, but you have to like do it in a productive way and a, a, a thoughtful way. I, I'm already working on, by the way, like not blowing up these big giant things, but just slightly changing them or maybe having them connected to something that actually will make it better. And I don't think anyone starts a business thinking like, oh, I'm going to, you know, really mess up this industry and like really take advantage. I think they start out with them. Um, and it's the same with artists. We start out because we love it and we want to do something really great. And then, you know, like everything, there's like little aches and pains. There's like little things that um, have to be ironed out, little creases and stuff. And I think this is 
the pandemic definitely is, has, uh, this global pandemic has just shifted things that these, you know, these wheels that had no incentive of ever stopping were stopped Mm -hmm. and there's no one that is taking the blame. There's no one that's getting any credit for it. It just stopped. And now it has to change. It was forced to change a lot of industries. And what's cool about right now is I feel like it did level the playing field a little bit, whereas there was this monopoly of Mm -hmm. like certain record labels kind of run everything. They all of a sudden had to like stop by them stopping. Everyone was like, what? Like now I can be, you know, doing the same thing that this person did, but she had like a million dollars behind her. And now she's doing the same thing that I'm doing. Bedroom singing. (laughs) Well, I think it's important to really remember, like, I like how you said, you know, sometimes, sometimes you do have to play the game. That doesn't mean you can't change the industry you're in. You can still change the industry you're in, but there is like the ebbs and flows of how an industry works and what makes it successful. And, you know, one of the things I've seen, or we've also kind of seen streaming platforms do is, I mean, they're starting to make record labels obsolete. Somebody can, you know, release a song on Spotify and go viral overnight. And now they have a career. I mean, little Nas, the little Walmart kid who just was singing in Walmart, he got famous off of, you know, just a video of him singing in Walmart. He didn't need a label. I think now he's on a label. You know, I think one of the good things these platforms are doing, and you kind of have to take the good with the bad is they are allowing independent artists to be independent and not have to necessarily join a label and play the games of the label and the music industry, which isn't bad, by the way. And actually, when you talk to anybody in a label that runs a record label nowadays, they don't make their money necessarily from artists anymore, which is interesting to me. Um, It's like they actually invest in things like Spotify, you know, Uber for like, eventually they're going to have their own Uber channels and stuff. It's like, they do other things. The artists are like the medium in between all of that. But it's, it is fascinating how many people have told me I don't need a record label being an artist. You know, here I am like thinking, oh, and you need to be in a company because that's all I know. You know, San Francisco Ballet, a Broadway show. There are these big companies and then it's an umbrella that you're under. You're supported. They always, you know, look out for you. The new way of doing it is very different record labels are not necessarily making money on artists anymore like they used to. So they are focusing on other things and which might changes everything. I think it's okay. Like if you want to be on a record label, you can be on a record label. If you want to be independent, you can be independent. It's like whatever path you want to do. Specifically, I know I could put in all the work in the world and try to build this podcast as a solo enterprise, but I also know the benefits of joining a already established network, going back to branding, most of the time, the reason people want to get on labels or networks is because they already have established branding. They already have the money where it needs to be. And I can just be like, all right, I have a good show. Now get me to the masses. Whereas if I was independent, you know, I would have to do that all myself. Mm -hmm. So I definitely can understand why people like it, why people don't, everything in between. No, exactly. And you get on the the bigger stages and it's playing the game and there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know what I would ask the um, the big industries to do, and this is something that I do with everything that I'm creating, is what does my creation look like in 100 years and how does that affect humanity? I think if people just started asking that simple question, what does this look like in 100 years instead of it's just, it's all, I feel like we don't plan very far ahead right now and everything's in the now and things change and shift so quickly. But if we really try and start thinking long-term and like a hundred years long-term when you're not here anymore, what does it look like and how have you changed the world? You know, I think that that actually would benefit humanity very, very much. 
we wouldn't be taking advantage of anyone. It's just you're thinking long term. No, that's a good point. Because if you really think about it, like impactful art is art that's impactful long after the artist is long, gone. Long, long time. And I think yeah, that's important exactly. to be like, how how is my art going to impact the future? I, I really like that saying. You're and welcome. then, well, kind of on that point, <laughs> how do you see the music industry changing with the rise of these streaming platforms? Well, it's it's definitely, it's an interesting time because everything changed overnight. You know, in March, it was like, all right, everything shut down. Every artist kind of stopped for a second and was just like, okay, what's happening? We all like kind of check out the landscape. Streaming is really cool because of the fact that you are capable of listening to anything at any moment. And it's a um, multi-generational bender, right? So we've we've literally in the past heard our parents or our grandparents talk about going to a record store, sifting through, not knowing what you're going to buy, buying your thing, going home, playing it, listening to it on your bed. And that was it. And then they listened to it over and over and over again. They started this collection where they'd go to a dance, they'd hear a song, nobody knew who it was. And so someone would have to find out. Nowadays, there's no generational music anymore because we can listen to anything at any time. So I met a kid the other day who was like just learning about Aerosmith. He was like super proud of this discovery as if it was like Elvis Presley from a grandpa. <laughs> like I found Elvis Presley in this store mm -hmm. and it was the, you know, whatever, nothing but a hound dog. And I listened to it 85 times in a row and that was it. And nowadays it's like people can go from Elvis to Aerosmith to Spice Girls to, you know, Little Nas to Beyonce. And you're just like, when have we ever been able to do that in history? So it's really cool. I think it, it will help people. There's like the fads that happen in any industry, but in music, you kind of hear like, oh, there's a certain style of the now. It's going to maybe help shift that and not kind of make everything all the same. You know, there's like, there's no right or wrong anymore because it's now timeless and people can listen to it at any time. So I think that's really exciting. And it's really cool that kids are exposed to different types of music nowadays and they it just depends on what their mood is yeah that's a very good point like it's more global so people like i just watched um today explained a, something on k-pop i just watched this literally before we started recording and they were talking about how k-pop is taking all these different influences from rock rap you know country and mixing them into one song so it's finding a bigger audience so more people can enjoy music from all over the world because they're totally. finding those influences from music you know, if you really like rap music, well, here's this K-pop song that has a little bit of rap in it. And now you're a K-pop fan. It's amazing, right? There's no boundaries, um, generational or globe, you know, globally speaking, we're just, there's no boundaries anymore. The, the one downside to it, I will say, is that like anything else, there's a lot of it. And so it becomes diluted a little bit. So people are, I, f I forget what the number is of how many songs are uploaded to Spotify per day. It's like, it's a ridiculous number and not all of it is good. So I think kind of being able to to be an artist, even even when you haven't really put in the dedication or that, you know, if you don't even have the talent, I'm so sorry to say that. Everyone deserves to be an artist, but nowadays everyone is an artist and, you know, there's there's a lot of watered down things to sift through before you can find that diamond in the rough. Whereas before that stuff that people sifted through was done by record label execs and they, you know, had thousands of people that they'd listened to before they signed one. And then they'd have a thousand songs that they'd write. I forget how many um, 
Michael Jackson. So Quincy Jones listened to like 250 different songs before he put 12 together for Michael Jackson's Thriller album or however many are on Well, that's even like Prince. Like they're like he has thousands and thousands of songs that they can still make albums of after he's dead. And that's what Dolly Parton's doing. There's something really cool about the fact that somebody else sifted through it and you didn't have to do that. But there's also really something fun on the other side of that and like kind of discovering artists yourself. You know, people are becoming their own like, oh, I discovered this new artist and she's awesome. Her name's Empress. You know, like you can do that now and it's your discovery. It's not, you know, you being played something that was already discovered. Yeah. I remember I found out about my favorite band, Small Pools, through Spotify. I just happened to find them one day. I was like, oh, all right. Now they're my favorite band. You know, they're amazing people. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. I think that's the important part is there's a lot of content out there. You know, I definitely like I think YouTube for some is like multiple multiple thousands and millions of hours per minute or something so there's per, so yeah, much it's, out it's, there it's a really crazy it's more um hang on per hour it's more content than an average lifespan so it's like you know let's say you live 75 years or something there's more content uploaded per hour than you could watch in a lifetime which is yeah it's so that's much a lot. and then like you're kind of saying like anyone can be an artist these days. Specifically, I'll speak to the podcasting industry because I don't have any musical talent as maybe, I don't know, people who have listened to my theme song, they might think so. (laughs) Uh, But so many people are making podcasts these days. So many people, especially during this pandemic. And it's like, there's like the stat that like, you're pretty much a successful podcast if you make more than three episodes because people just give up. So it's kind of like, saturating the market a bit but at the end of the day if you're really willing to put in the work to put in the hours like we keep you know mentioning you're going to rise above and eventually it may not be today it may not be tomorrow but you're going to find that success if you're putting in the work for that success i totally agree with that like mic drop (laughs) all right jennifer are you ready to jump into our second news story of the day yes this is from abc triple j australia uh so this story is based in australia so a lot of the numbers will be surrounding the australian work philosophy People no longer believe working hard will lead to a better life. The 2020 Element Trust Barometer, a global survey that measures an individual's trust in certain aspects of life, has found many people no longer believe working hard will provide them with a better life. Despite strong economic performances, a majority of respondents in developed markets do not believe they will be better off in five years. This new data means that economic growth no longer appears to drive trust, but instead it is driven by national income inequality. The study, which is now in its 20th year, found a growing trust chasm between the informed public, those aged 25 to 65, university educated, and in the top 25% of household income, and the mass public, basically everyone else, which states that 65% of the informed public said they trusted their institutions, while only 51% of the mass public had the same or similar response. Uh, And then also in this study, 56% of respondents claimed capitalism in its current form does more harm than good. So from kind of like my own personal opinion and understanding of this trust barometer, it feels as if the pull yourself up from the bootstraps philosophy is beginning to crumble. Even in the face of economic growth, the fact that the bottom 75% has decide, you know, has this declining trust in their institutions is a bit concerning. As the title mentions, what does it matter if I work my ass off if I'm not going to be fairly compensated 
compensated for my work and time. You know, a majority of individuals in the workforce, they're not CEOs, they're not managers, they're they're not bosses. I mean, basically, unfortunately, expendable. And I think that is why people are starting to realize it's like, I'm expendable. You know, you have another show titled Thanks for Loving My Pain in the Ass, which delves into a journey of commitment and hard work on your father's Christmas tree farm. From your experiences, how do you view this trust chasm? Yeah, I think when I hear that article, I, I'm really picturing a workforce that's feeling really burnt out. And so their ambition to keep going and going under the current pay structure is giving way. Um, I think people in America are waking up to that, but um, it's a little bit slower than our across the waters friends because Europe and Australia already have some structures in place, especially for women. Like in Europe and Australia, I'm pretty sure that women get a much longer maternity leave time than women do in uh, America by a significant difference. Um, in America, you're lucky to get three months. In other countries, you get significantly longer. So it's interesting that they're saying that it's not enough and that we deserve more because I think us Americans will just continue chasing and chasing and chasing the dream. But if you chase the dream too much, you, you get burnout. And I think that there's a lot of industries that are feeling burnout. That article is a recent article, and I really read that and I'm thinking, ooh, the tide's changing. People are going to start speaking up more. And when people speak up more, better policies will be starting to have. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the world shifts. No, it is. It is interesting. I think this is something that people have ultimately been feeling since the beginning of work. You know, I just think it's now that we're finally been able to kind of understand what it is, you know, have people that specialize in burnout like yourself and really be able to help people through it. Because I'm sure, you know, the Neanderthals were probably burnt out by all the physical labor they needed to do to just survive. But they were like, oh, this is part of my survival. I need to do it. You know, even people working in the factories, you know, before and after wars, they're like, well, I need to do this to survive. I need to do this job to be able to pay for my family to be able to eat, to put a roof over their head. And now that we have all these different options of working and, you know, this um, story talks about like the gig economy, like we have all these different people that, you know, are just working freelance and can do jobs here, there and there. There's so many more options to make money that people are realizing, like, I don't need to be in a job that I don't like to survive because I can find a job that I somewhat enjoy, you know, you don't always have to enjoy your job, but I can find something that I don't feel like I'll be burnt out working 40, 50, 60 hours a week just to be able to feed myself. Yeah, I've actually heard of people that are making big money as network engineers and so really stressed out that they take a much lower level job for half the salary. And I say, you know, are your finances going to be okay? And they said, yeah, but my sanity is worth so much more. And even though their budget is tight and they're stressed about money, they're like, I'm, I'm not having all these stress symptoms. I'm not having all these health issues. So yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. And like what you talk about in the ebook, it's like, you know, you ended up having to completely change your commute schedule because of a situation at work. And it just kind of was like, this is not, this is not worth it. Why am I spending my life, my soul energy on something that's just not worth it? Yeah. And the beauty of that situation, even though it was a really 
bad situation. I'm not going to lie. Um, the beauty of it that kind of came after it was because I had been going to coaching school and because I had built shows and because I had a brand, I was able to create a way to make money other than my job, which made me say, you know what, why am I risking my life traveling 65 miles in the worst you know, construction and traffic in the U.S. The highway that I travel is one of the top three worst highways in the U.S. for commuters. And every day there was at least three or four accidents a day on this highway because it was so bad that after about five and a half years, it was kind of like, okay, I've done everything I can at this job. I've helped them as much as I can. I've grown exponentially, but it's okay to choose something else. And as someone who specializes in burnout, how how do you how do you balance giving a full effort in your job without falling into the trap of the demands of the job outweighing the resources to cope? Yeah, that's a really delicate thing. I think you have to ask yourself that what are the resources you need and what are their monetary cost? And then I think you have to assess when the resources required to do the job are at a higher scale than what you're earning, it's definitely time to make some drastic actions to leave. I did a lot of modalities over the last year of that job to make it so that I could do that job without burnout. And what happened was the expenses rose and the pay decreased. And so it eventually was like, okay, and they were going to give me more money on my way out the door. But I had realized, well, I'm already feeling so burned out. What's more money going to do? It's just going to prolong the problem. And I think sometimes when you're career ambitious and you have a great career, I think that's the hardest thing to acknowledge to yourself of this isn't working for me. And it's okay to to snip, snip, cut, cut. And there are some people that, you know, they bail at the first sign of a problem. They leave after they leave a job after four or five, six months a year. And if you're that kind of person, there might be more personal growth to stick around a place longer to like really learn some deeper skills. But it can be harder the longer you stay in a job to cut that cord because you become so accustomed to that job security. It's the devil, you know, <laughs> you become I'm so used to those things that it can be really hard to like cut that chain from you. I definitely understand because like in my own personal life, like I had two instances, one where I left at the first sign of it being tough. And the second instance, I kind of stuck it out. I was like, I can get through this. Like the first one of leaving, like I wanted, I went to school for veterinarian science to become a veterinarian. You know, I had taken all these classes to prepare myself. And then I really got into like the thick of becoming a pretty much a doctor. And I was just like, this is, this is not for me. I didn't love it. And I didn't, you know, I just was like, you know what, I'm going to find something else to do. I went to Africa, I figured out that stuff. And, you know, sometimes I do think back, you know, I don't have any regrets about that decision. My, I very much enjoy my life. But I'm like, sometimes I look back and I'm like, you know what, if I would have stuck around for another year, would I have found like a better path within what I was doing and found something I loved within that path? And then, you know, most recently in my most recent burnout, and kind of what I want to talk about burnout and explore more of my own burnout is, you know, I was working in the music industry for three years. And I was like, every week, it was like I was fighting tooth and nail to get a client just so I could afford to feed myself, you know, now being able to look back working it out in therapy, it's like, I was burnt out, man. And I was just trudging along. And I was just I was just destroying my creative process. Because I was like, you know what, I, I felt like I gave up early the first time. 
time, which I didn't. That's such a negative mindset to have. But I thought I needed to grind this hustle out to succeed. And now looking at it, I'm like, that was just such a stupid way about going about it. There's no reason anyone has to work 70 to 90 hours a week to be able to feed themselves. That's just like such a negative mindset to have. There is definitely a lure of people that are successful that talk about how much they hustled. It's almost like a badge of courage Mm -hmm. and a badge of honor almost, so to speak. And how that trickles down into society is essentially it becomes glamorous to hustle, even if it's in the music industry. Sure, you weren't able to pay, I'm sure, majority of your bills, but hey, you were working in the music industry. So then people are like, they hold that over you of like, well, you're working here, so you might as well suck it up because you're easily replaceable. And then you're like, oh no, and you like hustle, 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 hustle more. But where I'm really fascinated and I'm working with corporations now on correcting is you know, the hustle isn't the answer because if it was the answer, everything would be working smoothly now. And what we can say is everything's not working smoothly now. If the World Health Organization has stated that we are in a burnout health crisis in the workplace, that tells me it's not just the music industry. It's not just the retail industry. It's every industry. And I think it's time for like a paradigm programming update. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think we are getting that with these new generations because I know my parents, their parents, you know, we talked about it before in the podcast is they had this blue collar aspect of working. Like if you work hard, you know, like we mentioned the, you know, working hard model of success that everyone thought was so vital to the American dream. Now we're realizing like, no, we're screwing ourselves over because we're working our butts off and not getting our worth for that. And like, I'm a big supporter of working smarter, not harder. How can I find worth in what I do and not feel like I'm burning myself out? Can I ask, can I just reframe something that you said? Definitely. So you said, how can I, if I heard you correctly, how can I have more worth in what I'm doing? And I actually think a step above that is your worth is not associated with what you're doing. If you know your worth and you honor your worth and you know you're good enough and you know you're lovable enough for the things you want to do, then that makes your things that you do go so much smoothly because they aren't commingled, if that makes sense. No, that definitely because, is a Because I think that there is this tendency that we hustle and we chase because, and I've, I've found this to be for myself too. I graduated in an economic recession in the U.S. and I found myself chasing after chasing after dollars to catch up to catch up did i ever catch up i don't know that could be a a difference of opinion but what i can say is that that chasing energy for whatever you're chasing chasing a girl chasing a career chasing better finances Whatever you're chasing in it, there might be a component that you want that thing because you want to feel worthy. But the opposite is better. If you can feel worthy, then it doesn't matter if that thing has happened yet or not because you'll feel better. And then the act of feeling better in your own self internally will create those external factors to happen a lot better. No, I'm definitely glad you brought that up because I think just subconsciously, we're so used to the idea of our worth being a part of what our output is. You know, the ideal model of the American dream. And I think that's just subconsciously, everyone kind of has that in the back of their mind. And I think what you said is so beautiful that, you know, you just have to really reframe that and get to a point where it's like, I'm worth me. I'm worth what I can provide for myself and really worth 
what I feel makes me feel good about myself, if I kind of phrase that correctly. Yeah, and I'm just going to add a little bit of something else here too, because there's there might be some skeptics listening to this that that'll say, well, then then you're too cocky. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: if you're truly in your worth, you're not really cocky, because when you're cocky, there's an insecurity at in in the deeper sense. And sure, you know, there's all flirting and witty banter and all that stuff, and you can take that to the nth degree and have a dysfunctional relationship technically. But what I'm speaking of is when you authentically feel your worth, whatever your external circumstances are, what ends up happening is you have no desire to be truly cocky in the sense because you're owning your worth. And I just want to like just emphasize that for some of the skeptics out there that might be resistant to the work that would allow you to feel your worthiness because you're scared. Oh, I can't touch that. Then I'll be cocky. And, and a lot of women feel that. And a lot of women get told that by well-meaning women. Oh, you can't own that thing about your worth. That's too cocky. When really the female is just saying, I did a good job today. That's that's an incredibly important point to make. And I think, you know, in your ebook, you talk a lot about bounce back. And how do you rebound from the feelings of burnout, those feelings of a loss in motivation, emotional and professional depletion, fatigue, etc., and begin to refine your ambition and sense of worth in a career path you once loved, or even a career path you just enjoy? For some people, it's going to require having a professional helping them. There's, there's definitely been aspects of my journey that I definitely had coaches and therapists help with and it actually prompted me to go to coaching school so that I could have the specialty to help others in this way. So I'm very grateful for my journey. I think for like quick on the go things, I think it's um, sometimes you have to play a game with yourself of recognizing, being able to A, recognize the burnout, but B, what can I do in this moment to feel complete joy and allowing yourself to do that thing? So like, let's say you've just gotten through traffic. It was extra horrendous. There was 10 car accidents. And now you have to go work for your job another three hours when you get home. That is a situation that really just sucks. (laughs) Um, But for like 10 minutes, you could do something that gives you immense joy. So maybe it's you want to cook a quick bakery treat in your home that's healthy and you allow yourself the gift to cook because you love to cook and you love the treats that you get to make. So you make like a healthy apple uh, cinnamon dessert item with like some a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of cinnamon, and you allow that 10 minutes to create that dessert so that you can have a little bit of enjoyment. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a full day in your schedule to feel joy. Sometimes it just starts with 10 minutes. Um, so I think that that's like a tangible like thing you could do now. But there's definitely something about hiring a coach to help you with this because society as a as a global society is very much about the hustle and there is a better way and sometimes the people around you even well-meaning therapists may still believe in hustle so it's finding a professional that does specialize in this kind of field to help you bounce back at a greater magnitude than what you would have without that help and i, I think that's important that it doesn't need to be this like you said it doesn't need to be this grand thing you do to kind of, you know, feel good about yourself. Like at the end of the day, every day, I take five minutes, just look back at my day and say, what were some of the good parts of my day? And I'll write it down. And you're basically, yeah, when you talk about like coaching, you're training your brain to 
have these different connections. It's the same thing as when you go start working out and you need a trainer to kind of help you, you know, set up the right form, set up the right workouts. It's the same thing with your mind. You have to treat your mind like a muscle. And yeah, sometimes coaching really helps you kind of, you know, find the right form, find the right, you know, weights that you need, find the right workouts. And I think, yeah, that is very important to kind of start small and kind of work your way up. And I think I just want to emphasize too, there's different types of coaches. I'm actually trained in the transformational coaching method, which um, that's a little bit unique that if you have residual issues, either in trauma or you have residual issues in burnout that just haven't alleviated yet, you can actually do some deeper change work that gets that to correct itself quickly so that you can move on faster. I think a lot of times therapists are really good. We have a purpose for them for special things. Um, But sometimes a therapist, you're digging into your past so much for so long that you're not really getting the skill set to move forward. And so sure, you go and heal your past, but you're not actually moving forward because you're not um, having the goals and the transformational work to like bounce back. That's what I really love about coaching. So if you're if you're someone listening to this and you know you're struggling with burnout and whether you're in the US or one of our European audiences or friends across the globe, it's okay to ask for help and to really evaluate practitioners and make sure that someone is trained in a way that help you can do that deep deeper work because the deeper work you do, the better the transformation and the more you can let that pass and you can move forward at a much more accelerated rate. And I think in our go, go, go society, that's something that a lot of people would really love because no one wants to spend 10 years in therapy trying to work on something. You could try to work on something in three to six months with a coach and you may have faster results. No, yeah, that's a good point. And I think people want to really just be able to live in the moment. They don't want to, yeah, spend 10 years in therapy trying to live in the moment when, you know, they can kind of condense that time and really work through things that they might not be able to work through in therapy or in just any other aspect of getting healthier. I think, you know, as someone who, you know, does therapy, does, you know, reads a lot, you know, I've been really into stoicism of late. I think it's important to kind of have multiple different directions and multiple different, like, tools you can go to. And I think, you know, obviously coaching is one of those that you can you kind of depend on to help you through whatever you may need. But, you know, there's just a multitude of tools. You just have to do the research and find the one that works best for you. Yeah. And it's okay to have multiple tools. Like I come from a little bit of an acting background and I know that when I have to do a role, I have different modalities I can do to create that character. It's the same thing for our personal growth and self-care. You may at one point feel, wow, I'm really into yoga right now because my muscles are tight and I can give me a better energy or six months from now, you may decide that you really want to run a marathon and all of those things have their, their place. All right, men, are you ready to jump into water cooler talk? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. This story is from ABC 13, Houston, Texas. Arizona man learns mom's body sold to military, detonated an experiment. Jim Stoffer, an Arizona man, was distraught to learn that five years after his mother Doris had passed away, her body had been sold to the U.S. military for, quote, blast testing, which involved strapping the body to a chair before an explosive device was detonated underneath. Jim's mother Doris had passed away due to Alzheimer's, even though she did not have the gene. Doctors had then asked for the brain to study as they were worried the disease may have mutated. Unfortunately, her neurologist wasn't able to accept the body, so Jim, he reached out to the Biological Resource Center in Maricopa County, Arizona, 
who were willing to receive the body donation. Unknown to the Stoffers, they became one of, dozen, one of a dozen families who donated to the Biological Resource, Cent- Resource Center, BRC, and were not told what would happen to the bodies of their loved ones. According to an investigation by Reuters, Doris's body, and potentially many others, was sold to the U.S. military for explosive testing purposes, including the aforementioned blast testing. Quote, she was then supposedly strapped into a chair of some sort of apparatus, and a detonation took place underneath her. To basically kind of get an idea of what the human body goes through when a vehicle is hit by an IED. End quote. Doris's home remains unchanged. Memories of her and things she loved are still on display including a small box filled with only six ounces of her ashes Jim got back. Jim says, Every time there's a memory, every time there's a photograph, you look and this, there's this ugly thing that happened just there staring right at you. She will never be forgotten. So just a quick fact, the average human body takes about two to three hours to burn at 1400 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit and will produce three to nine pounds of ash depending on the bone structure, not weight, of the deceased. So, man, as obviously, as you saw, the listeners will have seen, but I had a smile on my face while reading that story. The first time I read this headline of the story, I, I did laugh. <laughs> I, uh, I did think it was hilarious. Once I went a little more surface deep, I realized that that's someone's mother. Uh, So I took it a little more serious. But as Jim says, what happened was an ugly thing. But I just think it's weird that every time he looks at his deceased mother's ashes, he has that thought. We, you know, especially in Western society, specifically in the U.S., have like such a grim outlook on death, I feel like. You know, I covered the financial side of death in an episode with Chris Bales titled Must Love Death. But I'm a firm believer in like a more of a South American approach to death, more of it being a celebration. Sure, Doris passed away due to a horrible disease and her body was blown to smithereens. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, for Jim, are you going to allow those things to define her life? Uh, So, man, I want to ask you, do you agree or disagree with this being a situation in which the Stauffer family should be able to laugh about? Well, I'm definitely, when we get to my answer, I'm definitely not going to be binary. I think I could see, you know, sort of both sides. Why did you have that fact on the human body burning? Are you, do you want to get cremated when you die? Well, no, I was just like, uh, Jim had mentioned that he only got six ounces of ashes back from his mom. So, I just wanted the listeners to know, like, on average, you would get back, like, what three to nine pounds of ash so obviously there's a lot of his mom that's somewhere (laughs) somewhere else that makes sense and then the the question is do you think we like should sympathize and can see where jim and his family are coming from yeah and also like is this a situation that when they get to a point where they're comfortable they should be able to laugh about like literally your mom exploded (laughs) i don't think so I don't think they're ever going to laugh about it. I think, you know, like, I'm just thinking, Maybe you know. Maybe not just my sense of humor. And- oh, yeah. Mine too. Mine too. Like, I'm thinking, like, when I die, I could care less what people do with my body. Like, obviously, that's why that's why I kind of sympathize with Jim and his family too, because the only concern that I have about my body after I pass away is how my family and my friends and my loved ones would react to it. Like, I'm glad that you brought up like different parts of the world view death and the body different ways. And my friends and my family are probably conditioned to the Western way of thinking about that. And they probably value my body in a way where 
that would that would be really hard for them if that if they knew that you know my body was being tossed around and blown up for some military test but like personally i don't care because i don't think my body is who i am um and so like it's like like, like your consciousness is who you are and so like if you're able to detach that from your body, like they should remember who I was a different way. It's like my body has nothing to do with that really. And so I get where Jim and his family are coming from because I too am human. I too have been conditioned under the same sort of social pressures. But like when I step back and think about it, I'm just like, yeah, but like really it's just a it's just a body. No, which sounds I th- crass. I th- it, it is, but I mean I think I mean that's the truth and I think you brought up a good point on me as a person, I won't care what happens to my body when I'm dead. I'll be dead. But my family would and I'm sure they would like it to be respected and you know, to me I would love to be cremated and ideally either biodegradable back into the earth or shot shot up into space, man. Send me back. We're made out of stardust already. Send me back to the stars. I think that would be awesome. See, that's where I don't want to be cremated because that's like it takes energy to burn my body's matter and energy. Like I would, I almost feel like, you know, like if my body doesn't go towards science and like they can't experiment with certain parts of my body like i really hope like someone just kind of digs a hole next to a tree and just like rolls my body in there and covers it up because then at least like my body goes back to something okay, yeah, and yeah. is being used to maybe give nutrients to all the things that live around where my body's buried. So maybe I'll, I'll change mine. Yeah, because that's a good deal. Because if you're, you know, what was it, 1400 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, that's a lot of energy. So just shoot my body straight into space, no cremation, just straight into space. There you go. But I, I think I like read something about where you could literally, you get turned into compost and they plant a tree. Because I think one of the biggest things when it comes to death is people want something to remember. I'm, I just can't get behind going to like a cemetery and looking at a plot of land and saying, oh, that's my mom, that's my dad, that's my grandma, that's my grandpa. It's okay for people who do. That's their way of dealing with death. But to me, like, you know, I think you said it, it's like more of it. It's about the conscience of this is the way I'm going to remember this person. And I don't want to remember them as this plot of land. I'm going to remember them as who they were in life and not who they are in death. But when it comes to for my personal beliefs coming to like laughing about the story. I think it would be healthy for Jim and his family to be able to laugh about it. I think, you know, looking at his mom's ashes, as I mentioned, every time and thinking this is an ugly thing that happens is probably not the most healthy way of dealing with death. I, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a death expert, so I could be completely wrong on that. But I think they need to get to a point where it's just like, you know what? They don't need to laugh at it like it's hilarious, but just saying, you know, it's kind of funny that, you know, mom, she just got blown up by the U.S. government. And maybe, (laughs) I don't, maybe she was a a firecracker in real life and they're like, hey, you know, look at mom. She was just, she was the bomb in real life and she was a bomb in the afterlife. Yeah, exactly. I think, so have you, have you lost anyone that you're really close with, like in your adult life? Like I've, I've, I lost a grandma when I was like in the fourth grade. So I don't really count that because I was just so young and I didn't have a grasp on the real world quite yet. I remember going to my grandma's funeral and crying, but I think I mostly did that because everyone else around me was crying. But I think, I mean, I understood the concept of saying goodbye to my grandma and like knowing that I would never 
be able to see her and talk to her again. But I've only had one real close death in my adult life. It was a, a childhood friend of mine that died like four years ago now. I did I, I really didn't know how I would deal with it. And obviously like right after it happens, there's a lot of grief um and a lot of processing that needs to happen. But I'm at the point now where yeah, when I think about it, it makes me sad. But just like you, I'm at a point where if I can't joke about it with our mutual friends and like laugh at the good times, laugh at the bad times, honor all the good qualities of my friend, even if he, even if he were alive, we would shit talk the bad qualities of my friend. <laughs> and I don't think that diminishes talking like everyone says you can't talk bad about the dead. And like my friend is yes, he's dead, but if he were here, we would make fun of his worst qualities. I would expect him to make fun of my worst qualities. And so, like, to me, that's honoring who he, who he is and who he was. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good question. And, like, for in my personal experience, like, I had a lot, I went to a lot of funerals when I was really young. And I think, I mean, I went to two, three in, like, a summer span or something. So, like, death was, like, very common when I was young. But, like, as you said, I didn't really understand the complete justification of what death was and this person's never coming back. So maybe, you know, to answer your question, I haven't lost too many people in my adult life. I um, lost a good friend from Africa a year or so back. You know, his birthday's coming up this weekend, actually. And, you know, that was tough. That was tough because this is a guy who, you know, I traveled to another country all by myself. This was my first time out of the US. And he was like, he took me under his wing and he was like super supportive for the, the time I was in Africa. So it was like, you know, really tough to lose him well before his time. But like, I don't know, it sounds it sounds horrible, but I wasn't as affected or impacted by it as somebody who loses a close friend might be. You know, I I took it in stride. Obviously, it was a rough, you know, like rough few days when I heard from his family and I was like, "Oh shit, man, that's that sucks because, you know, I've been working on getting back to Africa with other uh, ventures and opportunities. And I was excited to bring him on board on some project." Uh so it was like tough to be like, "You know what? We're not going to be able to have those moments in the future." But I was like, "You know what? We had a lot of really good moments together." And death happens. I think that's the biggest thing is death is something that happens. You can't prevent it. It's eventually going to get you. And, you know, just part of accepting what life gives you and understanding how do I move forward from this? How do I become a better person because of this person, I think was, you know, kind of what I learned from losing that good friend uh, in adulthood. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my feelings on that as far as, you know, I haven't lost a mother. I haven't lost a father. I haven't lost an aunt or an uncle yet. You know, knock on wood on that one. Uh, so I don't know. My I may feel completely different in those moments when you lose someone that is vital and really close to you that's been a major part of your life for your whole life. But yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess I'll just have to wait and yeah, see. Totally. That makes me think, so like, I mean, we haven't known each other for too long, but every Mm -hmm. time I've been able to have a conversation with you, I feel, well, one, I feel sort of rejuvenated because I think you're a super open-minded guy. So that's really helpful for me because it's weird because when, when I, when I sort of headbutt with people, it always feels like to me that they've been sort of conditioned to like social norms. And that's why they can't see past the paradigm of quote unquote normal life. Um, So it's always nice 
for me, when I get to talk to people that, you know, even if they don't agree with me, they can at least kind of see outside the box and they say like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. Maybe I just sort of have a different angle on it. So that's really nice. So hearing you talk about that, that made me think like, okay, Adam is, even when it comes to death, sort of outside the box of maybe someone that's un quote unquote normal. Have you thought about death a lot? Like weirdly, yes. I mean, you know, we can obviously go into a little bit about religion and after death. Uh, but a part of when I started questioning faith, you know, I didn't grow up like super religious, so it wasn't like a huge journey. Uh, but that was one of the questions I started asking all of these different leaders that I went to talk to about faith is like, you know, how do you guys deal with death? What's the afterlife for you? And, you know, I think for like a year or two, I like solidly questioned death. And I was like, you know, what's going to happen? What's, you know, what's that after point? And I weirdly became comfortable with it. I feel like I'm very comfortable with death. Like I said, you know, I know what's going to happen. So I know, you know, I'm just going to live my life to the fullest. I think, you know, that's something I've been realizing, you know, the last time we talked, I was just going, getting out of burnout and kind of having new realizations on life. And one of them was like, I just got to live, man, each day, like, this is the best day ever. And I think that's completely changed my mindset. You know, I probably thought differently of death back then to where I do today, even like a year ago. But for the fact, like, I'm comfortable with death. It's going to come to me one day. I hope it's old age in my sleep. You know, I don't want to die in a horrific way in a year from now or something when I have my whole life in front of me. But as far as death, yeah, I'm I'm very comfortable with it. And I think it's a normal part of human life. It's going to happen. So might as well not fear it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I my sort of interface with death kind of has the same roots where obviously I, I grew up in a very religious household. And so when you go to church, you're eventually going to talk about death because so much of, well, at least Christianity is about what happens after you die. There's sort of a, a reward system built in to that religion. I'm, I'm talking about Christianity like no one knows about it. <laughs> what is this <laughs> but, thing? <laughs> uh, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, so like I kind of had the same thing too, where being introduced to dying so early in my life, like you begin to think about what that means. And even for me at a young age, I would try to, like when someone hands you a concept like that, they don't disentangle all the variables for you. Like they just hand it to you like as a ball of yarn. And so like where my mind goes is like, okay, like how do I begin to look at each of these threads differently? And so to like kind of think about death that way. And then I think for me, a religious upbringing and having to deal with the concept of death made me really afraid of death, actually, which is bizarre because I feel like if you are religious and you truly believe that, like the second life is what you're looking forward to, actually. And so to be so afraid of dying in my first life, it's, it's, it's a weird contradiction. But I was definitely super afraid of dying. And then even though like at a certain point in my life, I fully believe that I was going to give in a second chance, hopefully in paradise and not in a burning inferno. Um, <laughs> that's sort of what I was hoping for. But then when I started leaving religion, I sort of had to revisit that conversation of death and reconcile like, okay, so there's no heaven. What am I looking forward to? What am I going to do? How do I deal with death? Again, like I think a lot of times, and that's why I don't, I don't blame, a lot of times I just don't blame people because they're conditioned and they're stuck in this box and they have to think a certain way unless you really begin to, unless you really make an effort to break out of that box, which I, I think I always try to do. And so I think early on when I was leaving religion, death became 
really scary again. But then you learn about different things and people kind of coach you. And so like one of the lessons that I learned that brought me the most comfort is people really only look at death. They only look at one half of death. So like you live and then you die. And then I don't know what happens. It's just darkness. It's just nothingness. People are afraid of that half of death, but people never look at the first half of darkness and nothingness before you were born. That is the same as death. Um, but no one's afraid of that. And actually, like if you do believe time is linear, because that's how humans sort of interface time, the amount of time, the amount of darkness, the amount of nothingness in a death sense that happened before you were born, like that's actually a lot more nothingness than when you die and then you start the timer and it's like, oh, he's been dead for three years, four years, five years. Like we're talking about billions of years, but no one is afraid of that vast set of darkness. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you're now an atheist, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, if you don't mind, like, would you share how you came to those beliefs? Obviously, you shared a little bit about your background there. And yeah, life after death. What is life after death for you? Yeah. So that it was definitely a long journey. So I was born into the Seventh-day Adventist religion, which is a pretty young spinoff of Christianity. Um, it started in the United States. I know, And I don't know, like I know I was born into it. I don't know how my mother got into it. And that's who brought me to church. Um, and so for 21 years of my life, there was a really core tenet to like the things that I believed in. Um, I remember in middle school and kind of going into high school, I was religious to the point where, you know, I would wake up and the first thing that I would do was pray and spend five minutes with God. I would pray before every meal. If I had time, like at recess at school, I would spend time with myself and pray, pray before, like literally like sort of textbook style, like on my knees, at my at the foot of my bed before I would go to bed like I was that person <laughs> and then like you know at a certain point you again I'm actually still pretty amazed that I was able to break out of that paradigm like I had every opportunity to be in, indoctrinated to the point where I would never be able to leave that line of thinking um so I don't know what nudged me I think like I was saying earlier even at a young age when someone hands you handed me a concept and all the variables were tangled together I just felt like it was my job to untangle that ball of yarn. So I started doing that with religion when I entered college because I don't know, like I took college very seriously and it sort of woke me up to the world. And I started thinking about society and sort of philosophy and all of those things. And so I had more questions. I had questions when I was in grade school. I remember going to a youth group meeting. One week we talked about humility. And then the very next week we talked about heaven. And our youth group leaders said that when you go to heaven, everyone gets their own mansion and the raves, the roads are paved with gold. And I just remember thinking back just a week ago, you guys taught us about humility. Like, why would everyone need a mansion? Why would mm, we need yeah. roads paved with gold? They weren't able to answer some of these questions. So I think that those that collection of Going to my leaders and having them not be able to answer questions properly stuck with me. So like when I was 19, 20, 21, 22, that all sort of resurfaced. And I I think another variable is I was just sick of going to church. I've been doing it for, I've been sacrificing my Saturday mornings and afternoons for 21 <laughs> years of my life. And so I really uh -huh. had to evaluate, like, if this is worth it to me, I should really know why I'm going to church and investing all this time and energy and thought and bandwidth into. And so 
I started going to three different churches. I started asking more questions, and it just seemed like the more questions I asked, the more people that I talked to, it made less sense. It just seemed like people were making it up as we were going. And so I was getting more confused. I was getting pretty frustrated at that point, actually. Like, And then somebody introduced me to more scientific books um, and scientific authors like Richard Dawkins uh, was really sort of my entrance into atheism. I would read those books and they would make so much sense to me. And so then I went through a really sort of tumultuous two-year period where I was just so angry at religion in the church. Like I just remember waking up and the first thing I would do was post some really sort of hateful thing about religion on Facebook. And I was just like, ah, that feels great. And now I can go on with my day. This is like age 21, 22, 23. I'm at a a much more comfortable and balanced state now where I feel like I can still go to the church that I was raised in because despite all my, I don't know, the, the disagreements that I have with the logic of God and maybe some of the tenets of church or some of the lessons that are in the Bible, like it still is, there still is a sense of community. And so like going to church and seeing people that help raise me every Saturday, like I still very much enjoy that. So I'll, at least I can balance, like if we were having a sort of philosophical and logical conversation about God and religion and what that all means, I think I'm equipped where I can disagree with people, but leave like not angry. I think that's a good point that you brought up about like religion being this community and people being indoctrined into these beliefs, because a lot of the time people join a religion, I would say for one of two reasons, to either be a part of a community or to get answers to questions that they don't know how to answer themselves. And I think that's the biggest thing. When you have this community, you feel like you belong, and then they start talking about death, and this is death, and specifically for Christianity, this is heaven and hell. In the back of your mind, you're like, well, I could either accept these beliefs or be an outcast from this group that I've been involved with for, in your case, 21 years. And a lot of people tend to be like, you know, we've talked about it before, people tend to follow love. They're gonna go where they feel like they're a part of a community. Um, and it's kind of interesting we kind of have a different growing up religion story but we kind of have come to the same realization you know i grew up maybe we went to church every once a month or something but once my parents were like these these kids don't like it we're not going to do it anymore i think my dad was christian and my mom was lutheran i don't I never went to like church camp or Sunday school or any of that. But as of now, you know, you're an atheist. I'm agnostic. I believe there's something greater out there. I just don't believe it's been defined yet. I think, you know, every day we kind of move closer because you see all these interwoven similarities in the different varying religions. Uh, But like, as I was saying that as I started to get more independent and question what faith was, like literally I started questioning faith because of the Grimm's fairy tale book. Like I looked at this book and I was like, If we went back 2,000 years ago and Jesus was using this book and his followers and their followers created this book, we would be using this book as the Bible. You know, not to um, attack any religious people, but the Bible is a book of fairy tales. It's about telling stories, using fairy tales to tell a message. Like, hey, be a good person, but we're going to have a very fun, creative story built around it. So when I looked at the Grimm's fairy tales, like, well, this could have just been the Bible. But yeah, as I was saying, I started like, you know, literally going to reaching out online, going to churches in my area, talking about just different leaders and saying, you know, why do you believe in what you believe in? And I never found something that was that I was like, fuck yeah, that makes sense. 
But speaking of the afterlife, I do very much like the idea of reincarnation. That's very popular among many Indian religions. But as far as my own personal beliefs, I think you nailed it. Life after death is the same as life before birth. It's just an idea of nothingness. Um, you know, how do we define something? I don't remember life before birth. So I know, and I'm someone who very much believes in souls, um, specifically old souls. So I do believe in some cases, in essence or idea, I mean, once again, something you can't explain is passed on to another form, whether that be a human, whether that be an animal, whether that be whatever, to help create the idea of someone being an old soul. Obviously, explaining a spiritual plane is scientifically impossible at our current time. Hence why I find, you know, hence why I fall into more of a agnostic belief. But there are, I believe, there are happenstances that are going on in our world that have been that have yet to be explained by science. Once they do, once they are explained by science, I will change my tune. But for the time being, as and I mean really, like I said, as the basic idea of religion goes, I'm going to explain the unknown in a spiritual sense. So yeah, when it comes to life after death, I think a lot of people are very afraid of the afterlife. Um, obviously, you mentioned it's like either in Christianity, it's either heaven or hell. If you're not a good enough person, you're going to be in this inferno and constantly be tortured. And so they start to fear it. And, you know, I think people, they're doing this race for what the average life expectancy is like 75, 80 years. They're doing this 80 year race and they have no idea what's across the finish line. And I think that scares a lot of people and that's okay. But to me, I just think it's nothingness. I think we cease to exist. I think, you know, if your soul is passed on to another form of life a little essence of it is um but yeah it's yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna reinforce one of your points and then i'm gonna not necessarily challenge you on another one but i'm gonna bring up a conversation around it but i totally agree because i know when i was going through that phase where i was visiting multiple churches and asking questions of church leaders they would always refer to the bible they would say well all of this is true because it's written in a book. And I would bring up like, yeah, well, a lot of things are written in a book. Like if we were born and all the adults around us gave us Lord of the Rings and said like, this is the one truth and like reinforced and indoctrinated us that this book holds all the truths. Like we would think like Frodo Baggins is our God, you know? And so like to, for them to say like, this book was written 2000 years ago and like we just know that these things are true like it that just didn't sit well with me cuz like i was like you can pick any book and say that about any book and so I don't know. I had a, I had a difficult time with that, so I'm glad that you sort of touched on that point. Well, just um, do you mind if I get a little clarification wanna... in there? Oh, please! I do, yes, I yes, do, yes, yes, yes. I mean, this is the day after Easter, after all. I do believe Jesus was a real person. <laughs> I just yes, I just I like do too. I um. The reason I do, because weirdly, I was listening to last podcast on the left and they were talking about Mormonism and you talk about, you know, the prophet of Mormonism. I can't remember his name, John Smith. And I was like, this sounds exactly what Jesus would be in modern times. So I definitely I do believe Jesus is a real person. I believe a lot of those ideas of the Christian religion. I believe Muhammad was a real person. I believe all these prophets were real people. It's just the big guy up top. I don't know about him or her. Or it. Uh, I I always say it's him because I would I would really make the females at my church angry because I would always say God is a guy because I don't think any female that has is all knowing and all powerful can mess up the universe this bad. <laughs> 
So I'm convinced it's a guy. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there are there are truths in the Bible. And so I'm glad that you clarified because people definitely could have taken what I said and thought like, oh, what, what you think this is all fiction? And no, I don't. I think I think there was a person named Jesus who was super rad and had really great ideas. Really great hair. Um, I remember going to, <laughs> yeah, really great hair. Yeah. A great tan, a great beard before it was he even He wasn't cool. a white guy though. Just want to make, he wasn't a white guy. That's right. <laughs> this was That's in the right. East. That's right. Um, and so I remember asking um, my youth pastor, the, the pastor that headed our church, like, is it possible for me to hate God, but love Jesus? Because when I read the Old Testament, I read stories about a guy that is super petty. He's jealous. He takes it out on other people. But then when I read stories about Jesus, it's a guy that is selfless. All he cares about is helping other people. So I would ask people, I think I asked five different pastors in like a three-month period. And four of the pastors said, that's impossible. And one of them was like, well, maybe. You know, so no one, no one fully agreed with me. And so I was just like, I don't know. I just, I just, I, even to this day, like the idea of God, he's definitely not all loving. He, maybe he is those other things, but to me, he's definitely not all loving. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you clarified on all of those things. Well, even like more clarification is, I don't know if you're a comic book nerd, but Dr. Doom, right? So Dr. Doom goes to Wakanda. He's in the Black Panther state. And I, I believe it's like a White Panther comes to him and tells him, this is the reason why Dr. Doom is a villain, is this White Panther tells him that... You are going to be the one. I've looked at all the different timelines of the world, and the one where you are the leader is the one where Earth survives, the one where the best things happen in life. And now you're looking at Doctor Doom, who's, you know, talked about as a villain, and you're like, well, how can this villain be the best person to run the world? When people talk about God being all-knowing and, you know, why are like, why do we have cancer? Why are we in the middle of a quarantine for COVID-19? Why do young kids die? It sounds horrible, but if there was a God, I'm not saying there is, I'm not saying there isn't, at least in my beliefs, maybe there's a bigger picture here that we can't even comprehend. Maybe these things need to happen to get to the ultimate idea of Dr. Doom being the perfect leader for our world and our universe. So I, that, that, a little more clarification on my stance there, but I, I definitely understand kind of your thought points on that. I, oh, man, I didn't know that about Dr. Doom. That's really interesting because one of the sort of jokes that my friends and I always have when we get into religious conversations is I always, when I bring this up about how I think the, the Christian God, at least Yahweh, is like this big jerk. Like people are like, yeah, but like you don't want to go to hell. And so I'm like, well, I don't know yet because like the Bible is from like one side of the story. If I want to be like an objective arbiter, I would also have to read Lucifer's side of the story too. And that book doesn't exist. Well, I guess if you're a Satanist, like maybe it does exist, but like we treat that as like such a joke. If, if it's true that the devil is trying to build an army to fight God's army one day. Like, why would he torture and kill his his army? And so, like, I'm just thinking, like, he probably treats his people the same way that God treats his people. So, it really just depends. Like, if you were trying to be an objective judge and you there's two sides of the story, you would want to listen to both sides, not just one, and then pick that side because that was the first story to come to you. And so, like, to hear that story about Dr. Doom made me really think about, like, if I wanted to be fair, I would want to listen to Yahweh's side and Lucifer's side. Well, yeah, and to add on to your point, like you think about kids in Iraq, 
growing up. Big old bad USA is coming in and, you know, fucking over our people in that whole Middle Eastern situation. It's like, we think we're the good guys. Or even, I guess the best example is Vietnam. We thought we were the good guys, but a lot of people in Vietnam probably did not. So, yeah, I think it's super important that we see both sides of these stories. And funny enough, the church of, um, the satanic church is actually like, if you look into it, I, I ask my listeners to look into like the belief systems of the satanic church. It's a lot of very like good ideas. Like they just became a, um, uh, they just got their tax exemption pretty recently. But if you look into the ideas of the Church of Satan, <laughs> like it's it's not what you think it would be. There are a lot of very good ideals that are just basically just be good to people. I believe it, man. I, I always tell people too, like it's probably going to be like a, a much radder party too. Like there's going to be some bad apples. Like if Hitler shows up, like it's going to suck a little bit. <laughs> but like I'm sure Heaven's Party has some bad H- Hitler's apples too. Hitler's not even, he's way below hell. There's even a worse hell. Nice, a hell, but hell's hell. <laughs> but I did want to like ask you about one thing because like, yeah. I know you're saying you're an agnostic, and I I find that once we define different levels of non-belief, like a lot of times people are actually on the same page. Where I say I'm an atheist, you say you're an agnostic, and to me it's just semantics. Because even like if we if we put things on a scale of one to ten, and ten is I know there's no God, and I know everything in the Bible is BS, Like I would say I'm a nine. I can't say with 100% certainty that there is no God. Like you said, there are, there are things that we haven't captured through science due to limitations of technology or whatever, but I'm fairly sure. And like, or fairly sure with all the evidence that we currently have. Yes. And so I would never, I would never throw out the idea that, you know, like you said, if one day science looks through some crazy telescope and they're like, oh my God, there is a guy that's floating above the universe and like pulls the strings and dictates things. I'd be like, oh God, I was wrong this whole time. And my apology campaign would need to begin at that point. So like, if we put it on a number scale like that, are you, even I'm not a 10. But like at what number, so if I'm a nine, at what number are you an agnostic and at what number are you an atheist? Because to some people, 10 is atheism. And like starting at nine, you're actually an agnostic because at that point, I'm saying if we define it that way, I still think there's a chance that there a God could exist. But I still call myself an atheist. No, that's that's like a very good way of thinking about it. So putting it on a number scale, how I would see it. So if... if um. I heard you correctly, like 10 is you believe in Jesus or you believe in a God and zero would be absolutely not, right? Yeah, or yeah I, had, I had flipped around, but I know, yeah, exactly. Like one extreme and okay, the other. Okay, so yeah, so I would have a religious person at a nine um, because, you know, obviously they're very, you know, indoctrined into this belief, but, you know, there's a chance that sometimes they question those beliefs. And I would put an atheist at a one, where is, you know, there's no belief or there's no ideal belief you know there's a very limited belief but as you said if something happens if we find out we're in you know what was in menin's black we're just in this you know universe and on a cat's collar so they're they're open but they're very not as religious i would put an agnostic right in the middle at five um so that's kind of how i see it but it's interesting to see how you see it as an atheist and seeing how we're a lot closer than that difference. Yep, totally. Yeah. And so I think that's where people get caught up is like, oh, you're an atheist? Like, then then you are you must be extreme. Where when I heard you talk about that you're an agnostic and when you sort of defined 
through your story, what that means to you. I was just thinking like, well, I'm the same way actually, but I just use a different label. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I guess I tend to think of it as atheists are, you know, not strictly is the wrong word, but I can't think of something better, but they're science-based, whereas a religious person would be faith-based and agnostic would be right in the middle, like 50-50 science, 50-50 uh, faith. So that's kind of how I see it. Uh, but yeah, I think your th- your thoughts there definitely have kind of swayed how I would see it moving forward. Yeah, totally. Should we get back to the main story? Yeah, let's get back to death. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk, you know, this is kind of getting back to, and I love that conversation, by the way, like we could have gone on forever. Yeah, thank for it, you, but man. I want to talk about like, you know, we talked about obviously religion and this fear of death, you're either heaven or hell, specifically in Western society, specifically the US, because we can't speak to Canada or, you know, Mexico or South America. Why do you think there's such an out? negative outlook on death or do you believe I'm wrong in that presumption? Yeah, I don't know. I think we have to unpack what you mean by negative a little bit more. I think, you know, there's a lot of different emotions that can be... Or grim or... Yeah, right, right. And that's what I was going to get to too. Yeah, like it's... it's. I think people are scared. I think rightfully so. You know, the unknown is always scary. And we kind of talked about this a little bit too. Like we just don't know what happens when you die. That's why I think too, like... You know, even though if you grew up religious, you're taught that there's this beautiful second life, what should be a beautiful second life waiting for you. But even when I talk to religious people, they're still really scared. And so that made me think like, oh, do they actually believe the second life is coming? Or, you know, when I when I put a more human lens on it, of course, they're scared. I'm more like you where, you know, I've thought about this and... At a certain point, I have to laugh about death. Even like one of my close friends dying, I have to joke about it. I have to laugh about it. Otherwise, you know, it's just, you're just going to go crazy a little bit. Even though death can be a punchline when there are still moments, I'm not every day confident about death. There are still moments where it scares me a little bit. And that's where I sort of think back to some of the lessons that I've been coached. Like, okay, well, how come you're not scared of death? before life. If we're going to call the darkness before you were born and after you die, if we just call, I'm just going to call it death in quotes to make it simple. But like, how come you're not scared of that phase of your quote unquote life? And I have to sort of rethink about the logic. That's why like science and logic really helps me because if I sit in like an emotional state and I think about things from an emotional perspective, then because death is can be so scary, then all these, like you said, quote unquote, negative emotions start to come up, fear, grief, and just anxiety. I think, again, when it, when we talked about my religious journey, once science and logic and facts got injected into that story, that's where I found comfort. And that's where I find comfort with death. You know, finding comfort in death is so important. Like, to your point, it's like, I don't want to die. <laughs> like, I don't want to go outside and die. I don't want to get, you know, get a disease and die. That doesn't mean I'm afraid of that day coming. I know it's coming, but that does not mean I want to die tomorrow. And speaking to the fact why, you know, I personally believe the U.S. is so has such a grim outlook on death is, I mean, I guess to kind of orate my thoughts, orate, by the way, word of my day, I'm going to, I want to compare death to sex. So stick with me here, man. Uh, (laughs) So as we talked about in our sex education episode with Sam Walsh that just came out a few weeks ago, there was a time in American history where we all lived in single family houses. The, The parents were having sex with other people in the room, or not with other people, but while other people were in the room. And sex wasn't such a risque topic of conversation. 
The same with death. Back in the day, before death became a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, let me see here. Reports say the U.S. death industry will reach revenues of $68 billion by 2023. That's just the U.S. But anyways, families had to deal with their own deceased family members. That meant everything from cleaning the body, dressing them, building a coffin, digging a six-foot hole, which, fun fact, during our quarantine times here, uh, the reason we have a six-foot deep hole is because medical practitioners in 1665, following the the tail end of the bubonic plague, believed disease couldn't be spread by the dead, and hence, burying the body six feet deep would be a way of slowing stopping the disease from spreading. So a little fun fact for you there. Um, but to continue on my point, families are digging the six-foot deep hole, having their own funerals, et cetera, et cetera, with death. So dealing with death was such a common part of life. You know, people die. FYI, listeners, death happens to everyone as we've been talking. Let me get this quote right. The most beautiful way I've read about death is from the uh, Kurawai people of Western or West Papua, uh, Indonesia, who often speak of themselves as being in the process of dying and children being seen as their body replacement. I love the fact that we are, we're, you know, our cells are building and we're eventually those cells are going to die. We are right now, as we're speaking, men, in the process of dying. Hopefully, it's very far in the future, but we are dying right now. And then the structure of the U.S. healthcare, as we've been seeing in everyday life, has monetized death. If, as a hospital or a doctor, I can't extend your life past your natural dying point, I've failed, I think is a horrible way to look at death. But also, I just want to make it very clear, as I mentioned also in that episode with Chris, there are deaths where people die young, kids die, that's horrible. And you never wish uh, that upon someone to die before their time. But for old age death and to end my oration, hopefully I'm using the word of the day correctly, um, be happy for life that has been lived. Don't muddy its remembrance by the darkness of death. And that's where I think the U.S. gets it wrong is that we've monetized death. And if we can't stop someone from dying, we failed. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to sort of tee up this next section of the conversation. I agree with you. I agree with everything that you're saying. I definitely feel like I'm dying. Like I know my hairline is dying. I, as I get older, like I know that my knees and my joints are First dying. First time to take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and so like when you say like, yeah, we're all dying, we just have to realize it. Like there are definitely times where I can feel parts of my body dying as I get older. But that that made, that made me really think too, and like sort of tying it back to the the original story, monetizing death, and like to to monetize something, you really have to put like certain objects in place. And so, like when I read this story too, like it made me really think about who owns. So the so Jim and his family, and the mother's name is Doris. I don't know if we've um, Doris, yep. established that yet, but who owns Doris's body? We we would think if Doris was alive. We would say Doris owns Doris's body, but the fact that she's dead for some arbitrary reason, and I don't know, like we're just conditioned this way, like society has made us think this way, but like all of a sudden Doris doesn't own Doris's body because she's not with us. So then like the conversation becomes who does? I think a lot of us would default to, well, obviously her family owns her body, but that made me really think about like who, what is 
Doris and then who owns her body when this happens? That's a very good thought to bring up. You know, we had a similar kind of conversation in an episode with Angie Krause titled Life where somebody, a young son had died and their family wanted to take his uh, sperm to create a new life, to create someone to maybe fill in that hole that losing her son has. But it is like who owns that body after death who owns you after death yeah i think i think it is you know to answer that question from my perspective i think the bo- the family does own that body um you know i think that's why it's important to have a will and have an after death plan in place mine just happens to be happens to be audio so if i die and i'm married to selena gomez uh, later yeah, in life. Selena, Selena, my all my information on what I want to happen after death is in this podcast <laughs> with men. I want to get shot in the space. She probably has enough money to shoot me into space, so I'm not too worried. But I think in this case, to answer your question, men, Jim had given the body to BRC. The big issue was they just never told him what they were going to do with the body. And then later he found out through an investigation by Reuters, which by the way, listeners, Reuters, such a good source of uh, information, but Reuters was able to find out that her body was used for this blast testing. Uh, so hopefully, I don't know if that clears kind of that up. A little yeah, bit. it does. I, I don't think there, I don't think that's a question where we can land on a really hard conclusion either. It's just like, what is, what, mm-hmm. which way do you lean? Which way does this other person lean? I'm glad that you brought up your conversation with Angie. Cause I listened to that episode and, it was cool to listen to you talk about your perspective on it. And then I think on that particular story, Angie had a very different viewpoint on who gets to control that person's sperm. Like, cause it, you guys were talking about, it sounded like some people interpreted his desire to want children. And then some people took it as like, well, we have to continue the lineage of that person. But he actually, it sounded like he actually never said that point. He's just like, he was just enthusiastic about maybe someday having children. There was never like a conversation about like, well, I need to continue my gene. He just thought like children and life was beautiful. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm, and I don't, I didn't ask that question expecting a hard conclusion because it's really philosophical. It's really different. There's a bunch of intersections that you have to consider. Like, like I'm glad that you, you're open-minded enough to bring up that, you know, if you were born and raised in the West, you're probably going to, and not even, not just the West, like different areas of the West too. Like it, you might have a very different perspective on death and then how to honor someone's life in death and all of that. So it's, it's really complicated, man. I, I don't know what the laws say about when someone dies, like who has ownership of that person's body. I'm sure like the person's will has a lot to do with it, but it's, it's a, it's a really tough conversation because it's never been, it's, I mean, like I said, there's probably legal language around it, but legal language to me is like a human construct. Like there's no intrinsic universal Mm -hmm. rule about this. Like to me, like I was saying earlier, like when I die, hopefully even in death, my body is able to give something back to the earth that gave so much to me. So like, like I was saying, just roll me into, uh, into uh, next to a tree, into a (laughs) hole and hopefully like, you know, like bugs eat my body. And then like, you know, like that sort of goes through the cycle of life and I'm able to give back in a certain way. But I don't think there's like a, the universe has a law around how our bodies and death are should be treated no i'm glad i'm glad you clarified that point because yeah i definitely took it as just you asking about like what happens from a humus humanity standpoint and legal standpoint but the fact that you talked about like what actually happens to our bodies from a 
philosophical and who owns that, I think, you know, really brings it up. Because, yeah, like I think from a human illegal standpoint, obviously you have the option to do wills. You have the option to do audio wills like we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then also kind of to end the story, the option of donating your organs. You know, uh, Min, can I ask you if you're an organ donor? I don't know. I mean, I guess I could dig up my driver's license and see. Um, I hope I am. Regardless of if you officially are or aren't, like, why do you believe people should or shouldn't be organ donors? Yeah, I mean, the the reason that I've heard people say that they are against donating organs is because, like, it ruins the body, like, in the afterlife, and it ruins the memory of that person. But, again, because I don't have that perspective, and I want my body to provide the most utility possible in life or in death, I hope that um, I am an organ donor and people are protected legally that when I die, um, they can do with my body to advance something. I had uh, read the story from Am I the Asshole on Reddit, and it was about this guy who his friend had asked him for his kidney, and because he was going through kidney failure, fi- failure, and the friend said no. And I was like thinking about it, and then obviously the story comes up, and I'm like, I am an organ donor, but I would not give my kidney, I mean, I, I might give it to a friend, a family member, but I would not give my kidney, if I was alive, to a complete stranger. Even if that means that person would die. If I could save that person's life by giving my kidney and there were a stranger, I would say no. I'm not responsible for that person's life. There are thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people that are probably a match to him. Like, why would I be responsible for his death when there's another million people that could have been given them their kidney? The reason I say that is because I think the reason people want to hold on to their kidneys is like, I very much want a family later in life. And I don't want to get to a place where I'm like, oh shit, my son or my daughter needs a kidney. And I gave it away to this complete stranger. I hold my family and my friends and more worth than a complete stranger. And you know what? If people hate me for that, go ahead. But like when it comes to organ donation, I think at the end of the day, I understand like people's stances on you know, specifically religion related on wanting to keep the body pure. But kind of the big idea what we've been talking about is when I die, I don't care what you do with my body. If my kidneys, my liver, my heart can go to someone in need to save their life after I'm dead, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're honest about that, too, because that is a conversation that is so easy to be dishonest about, because think about the percentage chance that some stranger is going to come to you and be like, Adam, can I have your kidney, please? And so you can cross that bridge later. So it's actually Man, I, a lot. I told I told my audience multiple times that I would sell my mom for a billion dollars. <laughs> it's right. all about honesty here. All about honesty. That's right. I did hear that. And so like, it's like if you took a calculated step, it would be to your advantage to say, yeah, I, I'm generous that way. Like I would donate my kidney if someone in need actually needed it. And then when the time comes, the very small percentage chance that the the occurrence comes to you, at that point, you can be like, no, I don't want to give you my kidney. I don't even know you, dude. Like, I'm going to save it for maybe like a family member that needs it. And so I think people need to be more honest about that. Like, yes, like we would hope that everyone is generous enough where if you don't need a kidney and someone else really needed your kidney, that you would be able to give it to them. But we all have these weird psychological barriers. And so I think I'm in the same position as you is like, 
I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. What if I do need that kidney and I gave it to somebody? And so it's, it's just too easy to be a virtuous person in theory. And like, I always think about like when people ask you like, oh, like if you had, if you had $2 billion, like what would your life be like? And I always try to act like the humble person and say like, I don't think my life would change that much. Like, yeah, maybe I would buy my parents a nicer home. Maybe I would upgrade my car, but I think I would live like the same life. It's too easy to say that. I really don't know if I had $2 billion, like who knows what type of person I would become. Yeah, no, I think I just interviewed a formal, formal, um, federal agent and now he's a police or now he's a private investigator and the, that episode will come out before this episode but Min you don't know about that person and he was talking about how he would sometimes go to drug buys and they would offer him like yo here's $30,000 so then when he got to court the judge was like well would you have taken that and then the judge was like would you have taken 300000 would you have taken $3 million? would you have taken $300 million? and he's like if you're not thinking about it and you're not considering taking it you're lying to yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Like when it comes to selling my mom for a billion dollars, first off, people don't realize how much a billion dollars is. It's an exorbitant amount of money. It's insane. I could lose a hundred million dollars and still have $90 million. It's insane. I've asked, I've asked every single person, would you sell your mom or your, your dad for a billion dollars? And they're like, no, 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 no. And it's like, if you're not even thinking about it, you're lying to yourself. Right. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> and before we move on, like, I, I think we should, because like, we were being very phil- philosophical about this conversation too. And before mm-hmm. we move away from the story, let's put ourselves in the average everyday person's shoes. And with all the weird social norms that we are conditioned to operate in, when we talk about our gym and his family being sensitive to what happened to Doris's body, if I put myself in that position, it's very easy for me to say like, well, no, they should be upset. Like it's their mom's body. And I totally can view it from that position. But like, I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation with someone like you where not only can we say like we sympathize with the family and what they're going through, but like, do we have to look at it that way? Like that's the thought experiment that's really interesting to me. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, it is. It is. This is a very upsetting situation for Jim and the Stoffer family to be in. It is. You've they've lost their mother. They found out, you know, later that their mom was blown up by the US military. That's that's a tough pill to swallow. But yeah, I think the important thing is it doesn't always have to be that way. A part of moving on is letting go and letting go the fact that your mom was bl- was blown up by the U.S. military. Like, that's kind of cool. Yes. Right? That's kind of like if you really think about it, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, like like I said, you know, Doris, she was a firecracker in real life and she was a, you know, IED in the post life. Badass Doris. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. 